Hello, welcome to Tea Hanks with Memories. I'm your host, Darren, and today we are going to be talking about Bridge of Spies, um, which was released uh, in America uh, in October uh, 2015, but I didn't get to see it until December, because I think international release was being handled by somebody else. There were like nine different production companies at the front of this thing, like literally everybody and his man had a hand in putting some money into this thing. It paid off, though, because it made four times its budget at the box office. Obviously, that's what you get for sticking Tom on the poster as a big head next to a bridge, because it's about a bridge of spies. Um, in the film, also, we've got Mark Rylance, who won a few awards for his uh, his role. This might be the only film I've ever seen at the cinema with Alan Alderin, because uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't normally do feature films much these days. Um, and, of course, we can get into the rest of the cast uh, as we go. Joining me to talk about today, I have uh, Alistair Pitts. Hello, Alistair. Hello. Thanks for having me on again, Darren. Uh, especially, I don't know, have you forgiven me for uh, for giving a very heavily caveated T. Hanks <laughs> to the Lady Killers when I was last on? Uh, no, I can never forgive you for that. Uh, that's fair enough. That to my that's fair enough. I understand. Uh, also, a returning guest from some bad films as well, Sarah F. Decker. Hello. Thank you for having me. I hope you can forgive me for taking over <laughs> the Da Vinci Code episode by uh, going on and giving a report about how what the experience is actually like of working in the Vatican <laughs> archives. Yeah, you were. I, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, Angels and Demons. That was oh, a terrible yes. film. We were to, we were to be joined by uh, the other guest for that, uh, but unfortunately, a storm in Ireland has taken him out. Um, so uh, he was going to make very many jokes about having a podcast about Mark Rylance. Um, so that would have been very, very funny. Um, so <laughs> the first time I saw this, as I said, was at the cinema. Um, it was on a Wednesday afternoon, uh, the 16th of December, 2015. Um, it was the day before everyone's life changed because it was the next day um, Force Awakens came out. So, <laughs> so it, was, it was the last day that everyone could enjoy before the discussion, the nonstop, endless, constant discussion of uh, what Disney is doing to Star Wars, <laughs> uh, which has not abated to this very day. But uh, yeah, I had a busy... I tell you, I had a busy... I was going to check my thing. I'm sure I had like a really busy kind of week leading up to this because obviously with star wars coming out it was basically going to wipe out all the other films like all the films were going to be gone as soon as it came out because it was taking up all the screens basically um so i took that opportunity to see as many films as i possibly could in that that month yes i saw krampus and christmas with the coopers and sisters black mass carol the night before victor frankenstein and the day before this, a preview of In the Heart of the Sea, and then Bridge of Spies. How many, uh, if any, of those are better than Bridge of Spies? Uh, I mean, I'd say Carol, probably, if I was going to pick one. Um, you know, but, you know, Black Mass, I could, I don't know, take or leave. I mean, you know, felt like... It's funny, because there's, there's a few, like, deliberate Oscar bait in amongst all that. Yeah, it's the time of um, year for it. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's. I guess the reason they kind of saved this up for December over here was probably to try and get it nominated for some awards, which worked. You know, you've got Mark Rylance in there, so you know you may as well hold back the release. Of course, then literally the next day, every single screen at my cinema was taken up by Star Wars. So, <laughs> so I don't know how much. I don't know how much that really helped. Um, so when was the first time that you saw this, uh, Alistair? So I uh, saw this on a transatlantic transatlantic flight when I was, as I was heading over okay. to visit the in-laws in Pennsylvania. Yeah, I enjoyed it a lot, so I was very excited to talk about it on here. I mean, when I was at the cinema, I said this before we started, but um, I was kind of falling asleep during this, and I don't think that's to do with the quality of the film. I think it was just because I was tired. <laughs> um, and the screen was nice and warm, and, you know, it was December, yeah. and so I think, you know, 
I think roughly an hour in, I think I nodded off for about a minute and then just, you know, did that thing where you jerk your head up because you're like suddenly awake again. Oh, that's the worst. Um, yeah, so uh, a film that recently also did that to me was Morbius. Uh, I think I fell asleep almost three times at the cinema with that. But that was, again, it was because the screen was nice and warm. Um, and that's probably what sent me to sleep. But Sarah, you said when you first watched this, which was... Yesterday. For this podcast. Yes, I first watched <laughs> yeah. it last night. I uh, actually, funny story, I came on this particular episode because Ollie suggested I join him and now he's not here. But I have now <laughs> had the opportunity to watch Bridge of Spies, which I had not previously done. Yeah. So, well, I, and I think it's interesting because, um, uh, you know, obviously you've been a historian, well established. Uh, it's, re- it's really weird to kind of look back at something which is taking place like, I don't know, like 60 years ago and it seemed in like a completely different like time because it's like mm-hmm. I you know I'm sure I mean there was that story a few years ago which they also made into a film about that like that like extremely high profile like American guy who was like a double agent and was like doing dead drops in like a park and stuff right um, and I always have these moments of being like is this is this, yeah. does this count as history like <laughs> like my, my mom was alive yeah. when this movie takes place yeah I mean recent history let's say <laughs> recent history but like I you know this is not I think it's I think it's weird because you know this is like uh the fourth time that um Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg have worked together mm-hmm. um and in three of those occasions it hasn't been in the modern day like yeah. only the terminal was set like when it took place i'm assuming there's no indications in the terminal that it was set in a different year um so and then obviously catch me if you can and you know saving private ryan it's kind of interesting and i think also the post is again set in the past Mm -hmm. um so i think it's interesting that you know america's dads seem to like doing you know films that are about the past yes uh, in one way or another especially 20th century Yes. <laughs> yes it's very classic yeah. dad um and i think i think i think it's funny as well because obviously uh west side story uh, you know that was released recently and obviously during the time when this film is set west side story would have been released at the cinemas mm-hmm. um you know and would have been winning tons of oscars and everything so uh it would have been nice if it had been a little bit of the family goes to see west side story at the cinema <laughs> i don't know setting something up but you know, you can't connect everything together. Um, so, yeah. Um, also of note in this cast is Amy Ryan, who is reunited with Dominic uh, Lombardozzo, I think is how you say his surname. Uh, both of them from The Wire, of course. Uh, he being Herc and she uh, being uh, Beady uh, from season two and also later seasons. But, you know, season two is where she's featured. Uh, there is a humorous scene where Herc attempts to come on to Beady. Um, and she just, you know, rebuffs him. Because obviously, you know, McNulty is the man for her, not Herc. And we also get a very bit... I mean, it's weird because somebody was like, you know, who's had the best, like, you know, TV career since Breaking Bad? And somebody was like, oh, just look at Jesse Plemons. Like, he did this, 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 this. And and it's like, yeah, he's in this film, but it's not, you know, like, he's barely in it. He's in it for like five minutes, yeah. Yeah. Like, if you didn't know it was Jesse Plemons, you just think he's just another white guy playing a pilot. Yeah. You know, so... Okay, he's had a remarkable run of films since Breaking Bad, but at the same time, in some of those films, he's barely present. So, you know, it's not like he's, uh, what's his face, who worked with Francis Ford Coppola and then died. What was his name? I can't remember. Played Fredo um, in The Godfather. What is his name? I don't remember. He has, a, he has that historic run of like five yeah. films that were all nominated for Best Picture and everything. Yeah. And he was, and he was Mel Street's boyfriend. Um, but, yeah, you know, so... I mean, it's not like it's that run, is it? Like, Jesse? I mean, I like you, but, 
you know, let's not make out like you're hitting stuff out of the park here. You're just appearing <laughs> in the background. I mean, you say two words to Tom Hanks in this film, and that's pretty much it. So, looks like a Gary to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, well, then, uh, you know, let's jump into the film. Like we said, uh, set in the past, um, starring the Oscar-winning performance of Mark Rylance. Um, you know, the only Oscar that this film won. Uh, that year we should note as well of course uh, for Alistair in particular this is the reuniting of Tom Hanks and the Coen brothers uh, this time they made the good sensible choice of just writing the script rather than uh, directing anything um, and it's also worth pointing out that um, while the next day I would be hearing the score of John Williams on the screen after seeing this film he did not do the, the any score for this film first time since Colour Purple that he was not available I think he was ill he was when, yeah, uh, yeah 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 yeah, so, well, I mean, he's not a young man, so yeah. Um, yeah. So instead, we get Thomas Newman, who, of course, did the score for um, of the Tom Hanks film he did. Oh, oh, was it? Um, oh, the the one, the gangster one, that one. Yes, that's the one. <laughs> Everyone knows which one we're yeah, talking about. With Jude with... Law being a massive, massive. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Jude Law's in it. Everyone knows that, that one. one. I can't remember what that's called now. I mean, I own it on DVD as well. So um, and Paul Newman's yeah. in it. So. And he's very old. He is. Yeah. Uh, probably one of his final appearances. Mm. I think he only did like two more films before he died. Um, but yeah. So whatever that film was. Uh, <laughs> covered yeah. it earlier uh, earlier in this podcast. People know what I'm talking about. Janusz <laughs> uh, Kaminski, of course, is also doing the cinematography, as he normally does for Steven Spielberg. Uh, Michael Kahn is doing the editing. Everyone's doing stuff. But we start with uh, Mark Rylance. Um, and he's doing some painting in the park. Uh, he's being followed by Herc from The Wire, uh, which is how I should refer to that guy because his name is very hard to say. Um, and he sits down to do some painting on a bench and before he leaves, he reaches underneath the bench and we see him pick something up. Um, and then when he returns to his hotel room, we see him take apart a nickel and in it is a little tiny piece of paper with a bunch of markings on um, which, if you go to Wikipedia and look up the hollow nickel case, uh, you can read everything that was said on there because somebody has like you know it, it's obviously been released in terms of like the uh, you know what was what was hidden on that. Um, but this is reason for him to be arrested. Uh, the FBI will turn up. There's a lot of them. What I like about this is there's just like for an old man like in, sitting in a hotel room, there's like a ridiculous amount of people <laughs> that come in. I mean, yeah, but of course you know that this is how spying works. Uh, if you have watched the yeah. Americans, it's basically you know the Americans just this, but with more wigs. <laughs> yeah, Mark Rylance is notably wig-free. Uh, he's just using a painting easel. That's that's all. And, and in it, um, and in his uh, his wife runs. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah. I thought that shot was a bit weird. Where like we're getting like a a kind of inner thigh shot. Um, as he's kind of taking stuff apart. I was like, okay, I mean, I guess that's a choice. Um, but yeah, cut to James B. Donovan. Um, the most, um, you know, American Irish name that you can possibly get. <laughs> uh, we all know because of, you know, the TV show Ray Donovan, which was about a bunch of Irish people. Um, uh, which is why it's a pity that Ollie's not here. But yeah, we see that, that James B. Donovan is arguing with this other guy about whether or not uh, a motorist running down five cyclists counts as one accident or five separate accidents. <laughs> and mm -hmm. um, 
I yeah, I enjoyed this because it's like it, I mean to me it's kind of obvious. If you're a guy and you run into a bunch of people, um I guess from your point of view that's just one accident. But from their point of view, I guess it is five different accidents. He he, he argues the merits of whether or not, you know, if a house gets lifted up in a tornado, uh, you know, it's just a house that's been lifted up or each of the individual contents get, you know, claimed for um you know, a lot of like insurance lawyer talk basically. It's some this quality. Is, yeah. And I can very much say this is what insurance lawyers do because uh, my dad is an insurance lawyer uh, or at least worked as such for a very long time. So this is officially the closest I will ever get to Tom Hanks just playing my dad. Now I'm wanting to hear like the commentary track by your dad on this film of like, yeah, you know, that's that's (laughs) kind of accurate. That's not so (laughs) insurance. Yeah, I absolutely want to get my dad now to watch this movie if he has not seen it. So. I mean, it is the perfect dad film. It is very, so it is very I, dad I don't see film. why he would say. Yeah, he's yeah. he trends earlier as a history buff, unlike many dads. But I think he'd enjoy it. Yeah, is is he well, medieval history as well, or is he early modern? Uh, he has a couple of different interests. He started out as a big uh, American Revolution history buff, and actually has done a lot of like genealogical research on our family from that uh, period since we were in the U.S. by the early 18th century, I think, if I'm remembering correctly. Uh, but also has a side interest in Byzantine history. Oh, cool. Okay. Uh, well, yes. Now, it, obviously, when you first watch this scene, you're like, what is the point of this? Other than to introduce us to America's dad, Tom Hanks. <laughs> um, and the answer is that like, his argument from insurance policy will become crucial into the case that he's about to take. Um, where he goes back to his office and uh, he's been offered the chance to defend this person. Um, and Alan Alder says, you know, he wants him to defend the son of a bitch <laughs> uh, because, you know, everybody, you know, needs a, you know, representation. And this will be a good kind of like, um, you know, showing that the system works. You know, you've got to treat. What's funny is they keep saying they keep saying like in the scene the the kind of the the scene with the the the, um, the daughter in a little bit and the, the rest of the family they keep talking about traitors and kind of trying to define a traitor and how if someone is British as this you know uh, Mark Rylance is um, and the character is um, if they were British and they're they you know working for Russia and they're spying for Russia they aren't a traitor because they're not Americans so they can't betraying america Mm -hmm. they're just doing their job for russia so that like yeah you know and and the kind of the idea that he's a good soldier for russia becomes very important as the film goes on Mm -hmm. Um, and of course and it's worth uh, my my big uh, wince moment was that of course the example the quintessential example of who are definitely traitors is uh the rosenbergs the people who were probably mostly well at least her in particular was like probably mostly killed because she was jewish good job america <laughs> yeah, like the idea that if you're American and you betray America, then obviously you're a traitor. But if you're Russian and you betray America, you're not a traitor. You're just working efficiently. <laughs> um, uh, and we f- <laughs> we find out that Bono's daughter has been stood up, um, which, uh, given the, the the model of planes that are used later on, I found quite ironic. Um, because the daughter of, I mean, you think more is going to be done with it, but basically nothing really happens. But, you know, the daughter of uh, James B. Nodovan uh, is played by Eve Hewson, mm-hmm. Bono's daughter. When I saw that name in the credits, I was like, Hewson, the only other Hewson I know of <laughs> is Bono. So it's I Bono. looked it up and I, yeah. lo and behold. I wonder how she got this job. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so who knows? Uh, yeah. Who knows? So, yeah, I mean, it's a mystery, clearly based on talent. It's weird because, like, when um, Doug shows up, because obviously there's a discussion about whether or not, um, you know, James is going to take the case. Um, and when Doug, played by Billy Magnuson, who's been in a few things, um, when he shows up with all the books, there seems to be an implication, because he's like, I've got a date. And Hanks is basically like, no, you don't. And he's like, no, no, of course not. Like, you know, so he's like, yeah, of course I'll come and work on this case with you. Um because obviously he's you know enthusiastic and then we see that like you know um carol is angry because she's been stood up and i think the implication is meant to be yeah. that she's going out with doug um and then when he appears with all these books like there's a bit of tension between them and there's not there's not really anything, anything on screen that confirms that but that's just how i was reading it like he's like i had a date and then he's st- and then she's like I, I was stood up you know could be two completely different people but I got the same um, impression and I kind of expected that to come back, which, uh, spoiler alert, it never does. No. In fact, the, the, we get we get another, we get like a, after after we see all the books, um, you know, we're roughly 18 minutes into the film. And finally, Tom and, uh, and Mark Rylance meet. Uh, Mark, I didn't even say his character name because he's got a dozen of them. Um, he was born William Fisher. Uh, he had the code name Mark Collins. Uh, but he also had the code name in Russia, Emil Goldfuss, and he also had the code name Andrew Coyotes. But he was known to everyone as Rudolf Abel, which is, it's really weird because it's like that's a very, very Russian name. And in real life, William Fisher was a Geordie. So I don't know why he just didn't stick with like a different alias that was closer to like a British mm-hmm. alias. Just call yourself John Smith. Yeah. <laughs> like. Uh, Ruf, like Rudolph Abel seems like you're asking to be arrested by the authorities for being a Russian spy. <laughs> yeah. For German. Like, yeah. yeah. Well, uh, yeah. I, I mean, apparently he could speak like four or five yeah. languages. So, you know, he had a... And all of them with a Geordie accent, <laughs> which unfortunately Mark Rylance does not attempt no, in this film. It's no. more of a Scottish accent, I thought. It is. It, is that yeah. actually where yeah. he's from? It is. I didn't know that. I don't know. No. I was going to say. No. I was going <laughs> to no. say. He... No, Mark, Mark, Mark Rylance isn't Scottish. I don't know that. Um, yeah, he's um, um, yeah, I, yeah, he's Ashford Kent. I knew he was from Kent for some reason. Mm. I don't know why. But yeah, his name's not even Mark. It's David. Hmm. David Waters. Hmm. Mark Rylance is his two middle names. Oh. <laughs> so, yeah. So his name is really David Waters. Um, he too has so aliases. Much... <laughs> yeah, he has, yeah, so, uh, but yeah, so he, um, yeah, I'm, I'm guessing because David Waters is probably already in, in, um, in, in the one, that, whatever the union is. What's the union over here for actors? The equity? That's yeah, right. He, there's probably somebody already, already in equity called that, so he just used his two middle names. Um, but yeah, so Rudolph Abel is, you know, he meets up with Hanks, and Hanks is like, I'm going to defend you. Um, there's a few things where he's like, you know, telling him, you know, he's not going to cooperate with the CIA. And he's like, that's good, because I'm not from the CIA. I'm just a guy who's here to, like, represent you. I'm just a lawyer, like, and, and, you know. And, then, and he's like, are you good at your job? How many spies are you defended? And he's like, um, you'll be the first. <laughs> None yet. <laughs> yeah. Um, and obviously this, like, this, the whole, the whole, like, obviously Rudolph Abel, you know, he really was a spy. He was arrested. I mean, I'm almost to his dying day. He he was never he never admitted to being a spy. It's not what you do when um, you're a spy. He, yeah, you're not supposed yeah, to be like, it, yeah, I'm a spy. Yeah, yeah, this or is it. I mean, I? some wrestlers some wrestlers could learn from that. That's what they call keeping kayfabe. You know, uh, it's almost like he's a luchador going to his grave with his mask on. 
<laughs> didn't never admitted he was a spy ever in his entire life. Um, but like the like James B. Donovan, um, you know, Brit being his middle name, which I think, given the fact that he's defending someone who's British, is kind of appropriate. Um, you know, he worked for he was obviously he was in the navy and he he worked for the OSS, which you know would eventually become the CIA. <laughs> so like he's not from the CIA, but in a previous job, he you know he he did kind of uh, work for the CIA. Um, and, you know, he was, you know, like he at the end, they talk about how he freed all these people from Cuba. And, you know, this is stuff that he did. He was, you know, close friends with, um, you know, the pre like a couple of presidents after he did this. You know, he was no like like the whole trial was very notorious. And it did. It got his his, you know, his family some hate, but no gunshots were fired at his mm -hmm. family. <laughs> you know, that's completely invented. Um, that's nice to although, know. I didn't you know, actually look that up because my reaction was like, Ugh, of course that would happen in like my dumb country. <laughs> I'm, the, I'm the only American on this podcast, so I can just like dis America steadily throughout uh, as being the worst. So yeah, yeah. So, but yeah, like the the, the apparently all this comes from the first writer on the film who was um, Charman, Matt Charman. Uh, he kind of adapted. Um, you know, well, he read a couple of books. There was nothing that he specifically adapted into this, but you know, like he, there were two or three different books that he read, um, and th this is kind of like, you know, like uh, an amalgamation of of those ideas. So yeah, like the, you know, the the kind of the the shooting that that didn't really happen. Uh, there's a couple of other things in here where, oh, his coat getting stolen when he gets to Germany mm. didn't happen, you know, but it just put into kind of. Um, you know, kind of spice the film up a little bit. Uh, apparently, the Coen brothers mostly did all the negotiation stuff, so mm. it, it, which kind of makes sense yeah. because it has a kind of a bit of a jokey. You know, once we get to it, we'll talk about it. But there's a bit more of a jokey mm -hmm. tone about the stuff once it gets to kind of Berlin. Um, but yeah, so you know, uh, what I like is about when they talk about how he came into the country and he didn't register as a foreign agent, and he's like, "Do many foreign agents register?" <laughs> Um, which reminds me of the old green card that you used to have to fill in when you flew in, um, you know, from England to America, where it'd have a question being like, have you ever been in the IRA? It's yeah, like, who's going to go? Check yes on yeah. That one. <laughs> yeah. Okay, yeah. I'm a, I'm a paramilitary. I've got a few guns at home. I'm ready. To, like, it's just, you know. Yeah. So it is a bit kind of ridiculous. Um, but yeah, intercut with this, we now start to get ourselves introduced to uh, Michael Gaston playing Agent Williams. Uh, Michael Gaston, obviously been in a lot of TV stuff. Um, uh, I th I'm trying to remember like where I know him from. I think he was in a few episodes of uh, the... What's it called? Um, oh, I can't remember now. Uh, I just, he's been in so much stuff. Really, it's kind of pointless trying to name... Oh, he's in Mad Men as Burt Peterson. That's kind of like the last big thing um, that I remember him being in. Um, and he was in A Man in the High Castle. He was also in the pilot episode of The Americans uh, around this time. Uh, recently accused of sexual misconduct. So, yeah, I mean, you know, it's bound to happen, isn't it? Uh, yeah, so he's he's instructing a bunch of pilots, uh, which include, um, you know, Austin Stoll as Gary Francis Powers and also Jesse Plemons as Joe Murphy um, about the B, the U2 uh, which they're going to use to take pictures uh, by flying over Soviet areas, uh, including Cuba, I think, is one of them. Maybe this uh, is how Bono's daughter got the job in the film. Maybe, it's yeah. A, they were like, we mentioned, in, we mentioned a U2. 
Yeah, we mentioned yeah. you two in the script. Can we possibly get one of the band members' daughters <laughs> in this film so that everybody knows? They're actually yeah. legally obligated. Uh, they're told... Well, I mean, you know, that's what that. Yeah, that's that's why they're that. Also, the fact that Tom Hanks later on mentions he's very Irish. They're like, that's it. That's the that's the trifecta. We've got it now. So, um, yeah, I I think it's I think it's funny because like, um, they explain how this plane is kind of flimsy because basically they've taken everything out of it apart from leaving the space for the cameras, um. And of course, this is this is not really to let us know about you know U two bombers and what they can do and all that. It's actually to let us know about the the kind of the ending line of this scene because you know we see these guys get questioned and they have to have like you know a specific set of criteria. And at the end, they're like, "Oh, by the way, if you get shot down, uh, poison yourself yep. and blow up the plane, <laughs> preferably yep. in yeah. the reverse order." <laughs> Well, well, I mean, as long as you get it done. I mean, yeah. The uh, I think it's I can't remember if it's 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 like a shellfish poison is what they're they've got, um, you know, so they can poison poison themselves, blow up the plane. Uh, obviously, later on we'll find out what you know Francis Gary Powers did and you know what people thought of that. Um, I also just his name. Uh, he absolutely should... sounds like he should be a serial killer. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's what happens, don't they? They have three. Uh-huh. They have three names usually. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah, uh, we see that um, that uh, James B. Donovan is doing some discovery. He's ta- he's taking a look at what was seized at the house uh, where Herc from The Wire is like, this is what we took, you know, from his studio. And he's like, yeah, but what about, you know, his hotel room? Um, and this is where he kind of figures out that basically they had a search warrant to f- basically arrest the guy, but not to search where he was in the hotel. So it's like a Fourth Amendment violation. Um, you know, which I think is what unusual seize a searcher, yes. whatever that is. Yeah, it's, that it's you essentially yeah. you can't uh, search a property and seize any and seize and use any evidence from it without a warrant. Yeah, and the same goes for cars, doesn't it? That's why you yes. don't have to. Fourth Amendment is for cars. Like if if, if they like open your car, you're like, no, where's a warrant? It's, you know, you don't have, you're not allowed to just search anybody. Um, and this, of course, is then you know he formulates something where this would be fruit the poison tree, um, and the judge is like, no. No, sorry. <laughs> like, yeah, he's not. He's he's not a citizen. He's not American. Therefore, we would not expect him to have any of the rights that the Constitution grants everybody else. To which James B. Donovan is like, "Hold on a second. What this? What the what?" Um, but I I think this is more to show that obviously, you know, he did. I mean, this is this is what he did in real life. He went to these kind of lengths to to you know kind of come up with a reason to dismiss um, the stuff that was found on him. And they're like, no, 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 sorry, but <laughs> we're keeping it all in. And his boss um, and his wife are like, uh, could you not? Could you stop, right? But I, I love that this yeah. is such a pro-lawyer movie. I, my mom is also a lawyer, so I'm the daughter of two <laughs> lawyers. And there's not a lot of like real intense pro-lawyer content in the media. And I love that this is just very much, he's like, yeah, I'm a lawyer and this is my job and these are the ethics of my job and I think that those are important and so I'm going to keep pushing on this because I think that ethically and legally it's the right thing to do. I think that's, like, that's awesome. As I said, there's not a lot of pro-lawyer content out there. This movie is very much, like, the theme is very much, like, idealism. Yeah, yeah, like, he's not out for, you know, his career, you know, it certainly doesn't seem like it's helping his career, like, he's he's just a decent guy. Although, I would say, you know, you can pick pretty much any segment that John Oliver has done about the legal system in America, and the entire thing crumbles pretty quickly. But he's following the rules, and he's saying, you know, that's the, you know, that's what separates us from, 
uh, you know, the animals, and, is is being able to have a proper kind of trial. And certain uh, other countries that we could mention in right. this cold well, and, I, and I will also add that what uh, what what my mother would say is that the reason that the, law, the legal system doesn't actually work the way idealistically it should is because of the judges, which is absolutely yeah. what we do see in this film. Yes, uh, Dakin Matthews is Mortimer W. Byers. Um, it's the most judgy name you've heard, Mortimer. <laughs> I mean, come on. Uh, yeah, but he, I mean, it's funny because uh, Mort. I mean, I say it's funny. This is not funny, haha, just a weird coincidence. Uh, Mortimer W. Byers, like, died in 1962. So, like, this is one of the last, like, cases that he actually sat on. Um, you know, he was basically only serving for a few more years. I should say as well, the timeline in this film is very, very muddled. Yes. The stuff that's happening, like, in the late 50s and stuff that's happening in the early 60s, and they kind of jump around a little bit, so you don't really... Yeah, they uh, have a title card for 1957, and I was just like, did they show title cards for the other years that stuff happens? And I double-checked, it's like... Nope, no, they don't. No, no, they just expect they just expect you to know when the Berlin Wall went up. Well, if you're a history dad, so, yeah, it happens so often in historical films that, like, I think you could easily watching this movie. I mean, I you know not knowing things offhand, uh, you know, because I'm a historian, but of very much not this period. Like, you could easily think this entire series of events took place within like what four months. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's what it makes it feel like. Four um, years. We should say, of course. Four years is. <laughs> yeah, is what actually yeah. happened. We should say that Dakin Matthews was on My Two Dads, uh, playing Herb Kelcher. Uh, he was also on Gilmore Girls for seven years. Um, and he was also on uh, Desperate Housewives, playing a priest on there uh, for like eight seasons as well. But he's done a lot of stuff. And he's still alive to this day. I say he's done a lot of stuff as if. He's dead, but no, this is the last film that he's he's done to date, though. He hasn't done anything in the last six years. Um, but he's 81 years old and still alive, so... Um, and I think he does a good job of being, like, you know, the judge that is, is like, clearly extremely, like, right-wing and racist mm-hmm. and, you know, hates hates Russia, you know, as everybody's meant to do. Um, you know, so... And I think as well, you know, like... There is a little bit of kind of like jingoism of him being like, you know, oh, it doesn't matter. The Constitution doesn't apply to people who aren't Americans. <laughs> You're like, that's yeah, that's American. not really how the Constitution. Yeah, not really how the Constitution meant to work. But okay, uh, we get a very brief. I mean, in in other filmmakers' hands, this may be considered satirical. Like, if the Coens had directed this, I think this duck and cover bit would have been seen as satirical. <laughs> um, but as it is, it just scares the bejesus out of Roger. Uh, the second youngest son i think of the donovans um and he he's insisting on keeping a bath full of water at all times just in case there is a bombing and you know, i i mean i did like this because it obviously this is you know this was the reality that a lot of children who kept who grew up during the cold war you know kind of mm. faced like this this constant fear that at any time someone could drop a bomb and you know it's not i mean they're living in new york so it's not out of you know the realm of imagination that they would be bombed yep in the first, yep, they're, first they're strike, gonna, I would think. They're going to get flanned. Actually, yeah. in the yeah. making of um, the very short documentary, Steven Spielberg said that he apparently did that. He filled up a bath because that was the instruction, so you've got the water. So apparently that was a personal memory of his. Well, you know, yeah. And, and, and of course, duck and cover was nonsense. I mean, if they if they right. drop a bomb, that's it. You're dead. You know, tell tell the people of Hiroshima and Nagasaki about ducking and cover. Why didn't you just cover. hide under your desk? Yeah. You would have been fine. Why didn't you just hide under a, a little tiny wooden desk? Or, or a fridge. 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 Or a fridge.
Yes. Right? <laughs> yeah. They should have. They should have had the kid try and climb into the fridge as like a reference to. Yeah. Uh, you know, Indiana Jones. But you know, again, this is not missed that type of film. Opportunity, uh, Darren. Missed opportunity. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the the jury comes back and they're guilty. Guilty on all counts. Guilty of this. Guilty Who'd of that. He's guilty. It? You know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's funny because obviously later on we will see the kind of opposite of this. Um, but yeah, so he's guilty. Um, and this is where you know. James is like, okay, he's guilty. Let's, you know, I'm going to appeal it because that's that's what you do with cases. Um, but I should say this: um, don't kill him because if he is a Russian spy and he has admitted to being a Russian spy, even though you found him guilty, if he is a Russian spy and you kill him, then you're losing a valuable, you know, bargaining chip uh, for future. Which I, you know, I love the foreshadowing. <laughs> I mean, the the film's called Bridge of Spies. We kind of know mm-hmm. what's going to happen, but still. Uh, I I did like the reasoning of like just don't ki- like don't kill him but keep him alive as an asset, um, and when I was making my notes I don't know why but for some re- weird reason um, my Google Docs uh, changed my two S's into a little uh, German B thing as an as an asset yeah and I was like I don't know why it's done that but I'm keeping it in my notes. Um, yeah, so you know, and and of course, once 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 the 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 judge actually passes the thirty years instead of a death sentence, the court goes crazy. Uh, people are, I mean, I, losing their uh, minds. Bloodthirsty. Flash bulbs were very expensive, so the, I don't know what these photographers are doing—just taking random pictures of pic- the tops of people's heads, just <laughs> wasting them flash bulbs. It's going to take you ages to reset their cameras. You're not going to be able to sell that picture. <laughs> uh, wait till things calm down. Uh, but yeah, there's a lot of photos being taken. A lot of you know. I mean, it's funny because I would have, I would have had to just go order in the court and bang his gavel a couple of times. <laughs> but he doesn't do that. It's not that type of film. Um, and you know, Tommy's talking with Alan Alder, and he's like, "I want to file an appeal." And <laughs> Alan Alder's like, "Why?" Like, I, I love the fact that he says like, and uh, and um, Fourth Amendment. Uh, violations always have have more more weight in an, an appellate form or something like that yeah an appellate form yeah, yeah. he's going to take it to the appellate court I mean, because, because the thing exactly is the kind of thing right i mean that's exactly what yeah. in theory the supreme court is supposed to do despite the fact that what the actual thing that the supreme court now does is ruin people's lives um <laughs> because of america yeah. but in theory that is what they're supposed to do is that they're supposed to rule on specifically constitutional issues yeah and also, as well, I, I think it's interesting. I mean, you know, this is just stuff that I kind of know, you know, from things. But um, because it's in New York, it'd be the Second Circuit where it goes for the for the kind of the ruling on the, the Fourth, you know, Amendment stuff. And the Second Circuit has always been noticeably more liberal than other parts of the country. So, you know, I think Tom is kind of thinking here, well, if I, if I can get a couple of, like, liberal judges, you know, on, like, the Second Circuit to rule on this, you know, an appellate level, then maybe you know they might set some precedent or something um because obviously we're going to end up catching a bunch of spies like this is just going to keep happening <laughs> like you know um i should say as well sitting on the on the second circuit today there are two judges who were appointed by carter um which is insane to think about <laughs> they've been they basically this like after this film ends less than 10 years later those judges were put onto that court uh yeah one of them was born in 1937 so clearly good to have that person ruling on stuff the other one was born in 1932 you know those are two very sound legal minds who no doubt uh will be ruling 
in people's favor for good reasons uh yeah so but yeah I, they're, they're, they're like, let's go for an appeal you know the, the judge was a bit unreasonable in allowing the the search so you know it was it was an unlawful search um and i can understand alan Alder being like you were just in to basically just stand there and say like we didn't really want you to argue the case right. <laughs> like, we just wanted it to appear that you could argue the case like you didn't need to actually go into any arguments or discovery or anything like that make it you just look had to like a fair trial Jim. Oh, you certainly don't, you certainly don't need like to a... appeal right like you've done <laughs> at the very least like you've done your job you've uh, you know acquitted yourself uh, respectively now you can have done with this whole situation so uh, but then this is when some gunshots are fired of the house again didn't really happen in real life but still we see that the kids take cover under some desks um you know which is i don't again a sad indictment of american american life that kids know that when they hear gunshots hide under a desk um, so very very yes, ducking and covering though yes yeah just for a completely different reason um and that's slightly so, more yeah. effective oh yeah for gunshots yeah, yeah that works you know potentially yeah. at least um in in between all this case business, we get to, we see the planes taking off. We see them taking pictures. We see, we see one pilot get shut shot down, and he tries to reach for the self destruct button, uh, but he can't quite reach it. And then um, he ejects, and he gets caught on the the you know the the like hood. And then he tries to reach to the to self destruct, and then the eject actually works, and it propels him away from the plane. So he didn't have a chance to blow up his plane, and I'm guessing at this point he's lost his little silver dollar that had his um, poison on the side of it. Um, so unfortunately, he ends up getting captured. Um, ah, well, the the uh, coin comes back though. Yes, it does. Um, but the weirdest thing is, like, obviously uh, this particular pilot who died in 1977 shooting brush fires in california for a news organization which i just thought was a really weird thing but um he died on the first of august so he never knew that elvis died isn't that crazy um yeah so um but apparently when when the military looked into what happened they were like yeah he he, he followed all the instructions as he was told but there was just a you know he just got caught on something and he couldn't reach the button and so like there was no malice like he didn't you know, deliberate because obviously there were some questions about the fact that maybe he let the plane get caught, and they were like, "No, he was shot at, and his plane started, started getting like blown apart, and was on fire, and he just wasn't able to reach the button in time, and you know, he got ejected from it, and you know." So later on, they found that they actually gave him some medals, and you know, he was buried yeah. in Arlington, and you know, he was he was, you know, he was he was awarded for his bravery because obviously he was, you know, prisoner for like a more than a year, almost two years, he was a prisoner, so. You know, later on. But obviously, uh, the suspicions of what happens we'll see, you know, later on in the film. Um, but yeah, so as that happens, uh, Tom gets a letter from Rudolph's fake wife. Which I, this whole, <laughs> I love again, the fake family. <laughs> yeah, I mean, when, it, when we actually finally get to Germany, we'll see the fake family that are sending these fake letters. And it's kind of funny because, like, you know, when when the letter is given to him and he gives it to Rudolph, he's basically like, she isn't my wife and she's not very good at pretending to be my <laughs> wife. You know, so like apparently in real life, he did have a wife and daughter, but they were in Russia. So they weren't, you know, mm-hmm. they weren't in Germany. They weren't his like cover family. Um, but yeah, so I just I find that like this is again, this letter here is just a setup for something that we'll see once we actually get to Berlin. Um, and then we see the Russian version of the trial and it's a disgrace i tell you russia you know the red the red enemy the 
you know, um, scarlet monsters, whatever you want to call them. Yeah, no, they didn't have a lot. It was just a show trial, basically. You know, it's just, I mean, America would never do a show trial ever. You know, America trials are real. Oh, yeah. Alistair, I feel like you're an expert um, on this particular thing. (laughs) Really not. (laughs) (laughs) I don't mean Soviet show trials. (laughs) You know, I just mean like, you know, uh, kind of Soviet culture and stuff. You're more of a you're more of an expert on it than I think either me or Sarah. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, what can I say? It's yeah. It's gonna be it's gonna be a show trial, and they're gonna be yeah. less bothered about pretending to make it look like it's fair. I mean, but how did you feel about the fact that it's uh, even Steven Spielberg could not resist shooting it like propaganda it, for the mm-hmm. Russian government in a really weird way. I don't know. I I um, felt like it was a bit like, and here we are in. Russia. I mean Mordor. I mean Russia. <laughs> yeah. I mean in Russia trial tries you. I don't know. <laughs> I, I can't do a a Yakov Smirnoff joke about the Russian uh yeah. So uh yeah, I mean you know, we uh, we, we get to roughly an hour into the film now and uh, it is proposed that maybe as Tom Hanks had predicted like 30 minutes earlier uh we could make a swap. Um you know uh, it's also it's also kind of it's made explicit that obviously the, the the American government is kind of angry at this pilot for getting caught and put mm-hmm. on trial and being made you know a show of basically and that they're not happy with the fact that he's been paraded around um, you know as this you know and and, and the funny thing is at, the, at first America like denied that anything even happened they were like a weather plane got right. shot down so like what an <laughs> you know. accident that he wasn't even supposed to be over Russia at all. <laughs> What happened? Yeah. It's such a sm- it, yeah. yeah, it's 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 such a big country. You just you know you're just accidentally flying over it all the time. Yeah. Just like shoot, yeah. shoot. I mean, that's Russia. It is. I mean, it is a big that. country though, Alistair. It's like <laughs> 17 million square miles. It's it's, it's a very very big. It's country, even bigger so. when it's the Soviet Union. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is it. Yeah. You. I mean, yeah, because you you're basically going from the border of like China all the way to the border of. Uh, I don't know Poland. Yeah, <laughs> that's the, yeah. That's yeah. So that's a lot of time zones, like twelve or eleven time zones. Oh, uh, so don't it is, get me even started with that. Uh, they they actually <laughs> changed how many time zones there were at least once when I was living there, which was sort of annoying. Yeah. But, do you know what? Do you know what they did in China? They changed the time zones so there's one time zone across the whole country. Oh, that must be so matter, bizarre. Weird. I, yeah. Yeah, it is. There are people who are getting up for work at like three o'clock yeah. in the morning because it's really seven o'clock. But <laughs> yeah, oh, um, but so you know, that's, that's what that's what the Chinese government wanted. They just wanted one easy time zone. So yeah. everybody can do well, stuff. I mean, you know, Spain is still on the wrong time zone because they changed it in solidarity with Hitler. And then it was just like by the time Franco oh, yeah. died, it was like too much trouble to change it back. <laughs> so really? it's interesting because yeah. like you can kind of tell when you're over there that like it's not on the right time zone. Like it should be the same time zone as England. Yeah. Well, yeah. When I was living in Moscow, our our landlady lived in a city called Magadan, which was I think eight or nine time zones ahead of us. Oh, yeah. So if we wanted to talk to her for any reason, which mostly we didn't. I mean, she was a good landlord, but also I am in favor of landlords being like eight time zones away. That is a good arrangement. <laughs> Yeah. It was a very nice um, flat, but that was super inconvenient when anything broke. I mean, are you saying it was a nice flat because the Russian government are making you say that, Alistair, or is it really a nice flat? I could not comment. Uh, the view was very good. <laughs> the view was amazing. 
Yeah. I mean, you know, like, I mean, like, obviously in this film, like, Russia, it's funny because, like, Tom Hanks' character is almost like, Russia's not that bad. But then at the same time, once once we, you know, once we start to get in the whole spy exchange thing, it just turns into, like, a comedy of errors. And obviously everyone does seem to be completely, like, it's, it's just this really weird, like, America is super competent because they managed to arrest this spy and they managed to, like, you know, take everything. And then it's like you get to, like, Eastern Europe and it's like everything's, nobody knows what's happening and everything's falling apart and you can't even get two people to agree on anything. It's kind of death of Stalin of... territory. And especially because, I mean, yeah. they're in East Germany and I am definitely not an expert on this, uh, but I did some, like, you know, slight reading really just because I really like the film Lives of Others. And ooh, at some point, ooh. such a good movie, right? So and glad. at some point yeah. I so came glad. across the excellent joke of uh, how do you know that the Stasi, the East German secret police, uh, bugged your house, and the in the punchline is something like you have a new lamp now, um, <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. so that it was kind of a joke that like the East German like bureaucratic oppressive apparatus was like just not very good at it, and I think that's really interesting how that shows up in this film. I mean, it's interesting because obviously Sebastian Koch, who yes. was in, I'm so happy others, to see it, him. We will, <laughs> yeah, we will eventually. <laughs> Uh, meet him once we get into uh, into Germany, um, but yeah. So they propose. Okay, let's let's swap a couple of spies. Um, you know, let's <laughs> let's let's swap this guy for the. I mean, even though he's Russian, uh, let yeah. Well, you know, he not, he's a, he's he's British, but not Russian, and what like it's complicated. But let, let's swap him for this pilot who's just been caught uh, by the Russians, and the go between will be Germany, uh, in particular. Um, both West and East Germany will will, will kind of negotiate different different exchanges. Um, so yeah, uh, so what we end up with here, which I, I find quite funny, is like um, you know Tom is going to the Russian embassy in East Berlin. Yes, am I, yes. Am I crazy? Yeah. yeah, he lands in West Berlin. He goes to the checkpoint. He goes to East Berlin, and he runs into a bunch of what I can only describe as uh, German. Like punk rock youth, like it's just like, a, like uh, they felt they felt too early for this particular like time period. Like they felt a bit more like kind of you know I don't know. It's just a weird. It's just a weird thing. Maybe it's because I watched Atomic Blonde like a few weeks ago and they struck me that they were kind of a little bit more like that. Um, of course, that's a film about the war coming down. So yeah, it seemed very eighties to me. Yeah, I, I, it's, it's weird because I think like obviously once once you were behind the wall, things did kind of stop like time kind of stopped a little bit so i guess 1989 in you know east germany was pretty much the same as 1960 in east germany mm. like there wasn't you know nothing really like there was no outside influence if you know like western culture and stuff um so yeah so he runs into these youths and they basically they give him directions to the russian embassy but only if they can have his coat and so they steal his coat from him and obviously it's snowing um and he like you know runs to the to the russian embassy and gets in there uh, and then you know we we kind of then enter the Cohen brothers half of this film where things will be very kind of almost like not quite like a farce but things are a little bit farcical in that the person he's meant to meet which is uh Vogel uh the lawyer for um who is he he's a effective uh, he's, really he's weird lawyer he's lawyer like for the, both and that's very weird yes. yeah yeah he's like the lawyer he's lawyer for both prior and powers um, I know he's a lawyer he's in, for Pryor he, and for Abel's fam, Abel's Abel. fake family. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah. It's ve- I mean, obviously, you know, Sebastian Koch. This he's playing this Wolfgang Vogel, um, who initially he isn't in the Russian embassy. 
Um, so instead, you know, when Tom gets there, he sees this fake family, which again, like, I, well, who is the one who's calling himself like the cousin or something? And he's, yeah, he's like uh, so beloved, all... beloved cousin Drews. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, we have this family, like this fake wife with this fake daughter and this like fake, you know, beloved uncle, and they and he's like, well. He says to them, "Are you Vogel?" And they're like, "No, we're not. We're his. You know, we're his family. We're Abel's family. We hope for him to be released soon." They leave, and then he's like, um, "Is Mister Vogel there?" And then apparently the uh, secretary comes out, um, and he talks with him. His name is um, uh, Shis- Um and he's like, "Are you Vogel?" And he's like, "No, I'm not Vogel." <laughs> like he's like, "Vogel's not coming today." <laughs> and it's like, "What the like?" He- uh, uh, understandably, you know, uh, James Donovan is like perplexed as to what is going on. Um, so obviously, you know, they have a talk and they're, they're you know, the deal is going to be, um, you know, uh, powers and prior for. Abel. So we have not talked um, about prior and prior's situation, which I gonna, I'm going to be honest with you. Whenever I watch whenever I watch this film, I'm like, oh, yeah, this guy's in it because like this whole story is so. It feels so superfluous to me, but I get like it happened in real life, so they have to include yes. it. Yes. So on the but one hand, yeah. it is. Very I mean, if you want to de- if you want to detail it, yeah, if you want to detail it for us, Sarah, so yeah, we can catch everyone. Uh, so he is uh, there as a student. He is a Yale graduate student, and is there to uh, you know work on or hand over. He's like I think he's actually delivering a copy of his dissertation to this professor, and then you know he gets caught basically trying to do that and to help get, I think, his daughter out, whatever it is. But uh, for me, one of the most emotionally evocative moments in this film as a person who has written a dissertation is that he's bringing out his dissertation as proof that he's a student and uh, they're grabbing at it. I'm like, no, it's 1957. There's no way he has another copy of this. And then he's like, I, this is my only copy. And I'm like, no, no. Yeah. Um, it's 1960. It's not 1957. Yes, right. Yes, it's 1960. Um, yeah, so. <laughs> he still does not have any other additional yeah. copies. Oh, no, yeah. Uh, which uh, to me and, is traumatizing as uh, to, as something to watch. Yeah, and it's just it's literally just as the wall is going up, we see mm-hmm. them starting to construct the wall, and he's trying to get this 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 um, you know professor and this daughter across. Well, his his before... girlfriend. Yeah. Which yeah. I think they've yeah. kind of taken some liberties there from what I understand. Uh, I ended up actually doing more looking up of this particular guy because, <laughs> not just because he was an academic, because uh, it actually does tell us in terms of what happens to him that he becomes an economics professor at the college that I attended as an undergrad. Oh, nice. Oh, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> So it's possible you could have met him and then we could have been, you know, two degrees of separation away I from know. a Russian spy. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, he, he retired yeah. a few years before I started, so I unfortunately did not ever yeah. meet him. But uh, I'll, I'll have something to share related to, to that later. I mean, of, of everyone involved in the film, he was the one who said basically it, it wasn't true. Like yeah. everything that was on screen, like he was caught, but everything else he's like, that wasn't true. Whereas, you know, other people involved had said, no, actually, this is quite accurate. Yeah. Um, and somebody did investigate it and said the film is roughly 88% accurate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Although it fudges the timeline on a couple of things. Just like like you say, it makes it a tiny bit confusing in terms of like when stuff actually happened. Right. Um, on a completely different tangent, uh, I should say that in WCW, there were a couple of wrestlers. One was a, a guy called Alex Wright, and he took on the name Berlin. 
uh, spelt with a Y, because uh, he was he was German in real life. Uh, he was known as Das Wunderkind, and um, he had a tag team partner called The Wall. So together they were Berlin and The Wall. That's great. Which always amuses me. Yeah, I mean, at the time WCW was in the toilet, so it was a waste. But yes, yeah, that's a great gimmick, like to have somebody called Berlin and somebody called The Wall. Yeah. Um, so, oh, and I will also add, actually, so that prior, oh, uh, in terms of his other conversation about this whole event, uh, also said that he uh, mentioned the fact that, so Swarthmore College, place that he taught, he said, Swarthmore didn't care about his imprisonment. In fact, I think the students kind of got a kick out of having an ex-con teaching them, which is absolutely <laughs> 100% tracks as somebody who attended that particular institution. <laughs> Um, yeah, so uh, we we find out that basically, um, you know, uh, like Tom is kind of basically going going like uh, around Berlin. Uh, he's being driven back to the other side of Berlin by Vogel, um, and he gets to the gate, and, and Vogel is like, "Hey, enjoy your night in jail." And he kind of leaves because Vogel well, very angry driving. Yeah, so he gets yeah, pulled over, yeah. and then he just walks off, and he's like, "Bye." Yeah, and apparently there was a passport problem, which of course is Vogel kind of taking a bit of, right. <laughs> like a bit of revenge, um, on uh, on Donovan. But what I what I like here is that you know, um, like we get the, we get the I mean, even though prior to me, like the whole storyline feels a little bit like on the side, um, especially for a film that's two hours long. Like you know, we don't really get we don't get to know him. We just see him in like mm-hmm. one scene. We see him a couple of times being interrogated, and then we see him get swapped at the end. Spoiler alert for the end of this film. Um, but, you know, like, th- it, there's not a huge amount. Most of, most, the point of prior is mostly so that James B. Donovan has an excuse to be a good lawyer because, yeah. you know, the deal has been set up for Abel and, um, and prior, no, sorry, Abel and Powers, um, and he wants prior included, but yeah. his, his CIA handler, uh, played by Scott Shepard, called Hoffman, yeah, he's like, just, like, just give him Abel. And we'll have back powers, and everybody will be happy. Like, and, it, and he's know, also why like, ha- "Why are you trying to get this Yale, Yale kid who's so- studying Soviet economics during the Cold he's War?" Like, who cares? <laughs> it's a soap. Yeah, he heavily yeah. implies that he's that he's somehow a traitor and just deserves right. whatever he gets. Which, yeah. which again, absolutely tracks as somebody who would end up teaching at Swarthmore, which was nicknamed by <laughs> Richard Nixon the Kremlin on the Crumb, which was the name of the creek that went through campus. <laughs> Yeah, that's I th- badge I think, of honor. I think, I think being dissed uh-huh. yeah. by, yeah. by oh, tricky yeah. dicky. Yeah. Uh-huh. I th- I think I think it's funny because like obviously the handler, which pa- apparently is is an amalgam of many characters, much like um, you know the character that that was played by Tom Hanks in Catch Me If You Can mm-hmm. was you know obviously it was an amalgam of a couple of different FBI agents. Um, and, you know, we don't expect them to have all the different CIA guys, you know, kind of talking to him. But what I like is, like, when he first meets him, he's like, literally, I'm from the CIA. Right. <laughs> like, shows his credentials. Because, obviously, you know, James B. Donovan used to work for the mm-hmm. what essentially was the CIA. So there's no there's no problem, um, you know, between spooks showing each other their ID. Um, but he does this funny thing where he, like, orders a ton of breakfast. And then when <laughs> uh, Hoffman shows up, he's like, okay, enjoy your breakfast. And then he just leaves yeah. him on the table with all this food. And I'm guessing also with the bill, um, which I, I thought was kind of funny. Because when, when the waitress is like, what do you want? He's like, coffee and also these breakfasts. And she's like, which one first? And he's like, both of them at the same time. Just bring them to me. Um, so obviously he was just setting up the guy to be you know, inconvenienced. Uh, we also find out that the guy that um, you know uh, Ivan Sh- uh, Sh- Shishkin, Shishkin. Um, Shishkin is actually KGB. 
Uh, he's not. He's not like anything. But then, who'd have thought? The funny thing, yeah. But what I what I find is funny is obviously like you know, um, uh, embassies, and this is some research that I did for something I wrote many many years ago. Um, only exist on a like quid pro quo. Like everyone's like, oh, it's foreign soil and all this kind of stuff, and it's like, well, technically speaking, if you want, you can bomb the crap out of an embassy. There's no real comeback apart from the fact that they will bomb the crap out of your embassies. So you don't do that. It's just a politeness, like, you know, and the same with diplomatic immunity. Like, that is a politeness that is given by countries and can easily be taken away. You know, if you do something and you're like diplomatic immunity and your own country's like, no, they can just get rid of your status as a diplomat. But obviously, during the Cold War, a thing that was popular was cultural attaches, which was just a fancy way of saying these are the spies <laughs> of various embassies. And everybody knew it. Yeah. And nobody bothered to cover it up. So this guy, he's like calling himself like the second something secretary. Like he's giving himself a position. Like but everyone's just like, oh yeah, that, oh, that's the KGB officer who's running. I have a fun running... embassy story. I have a fun embassy Go for story. It, I Alistair. briefly did an internship at the New Zealand embassy in Moscow. And one of the officers uh, who was working there, uh, his name was David Lynch. <laughs> which <laughs> I enjoyed a lot. That's, great. that's. I mean, that's definitely got to be like, uh, you know, that's got to be like, uh, that's got to be deliberate. Like his parents have got to be like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we're lynching. What are we going to call our son? We're going to call him David. Um, yeah. Um, in in fact, in DC, there is a there's a street called Embassy Row where it's just yeah. literally embassy after embassy after embassy, and also like the like the buildings that you you give them because like the embassies are given by the host country. Mm-hmm. And so you have a choice of where to put them and what to give them. Oh, yeah. And, and so how much you like that country will determine right. what <laughs> embassy you give yeah. them. Yeah. So, you know, like the kind like, in fact, technically speaking, I mean, this is, I mean, an embassy is, is actually just called a diplomatic mission. The ambassador, where they are resident, is, is technically where the embassy is, is wherever the ambassador for that particular country is. So the building that you're in is just a diplomatic mission and then when the when the ambassador comes you're an embassy uh, it's a very weird it's a very weird thing but for most for most cases the embassies are just considered an embassy all the time uh, you don't bother but technically they're just diplomatic missions that's how they're, they're yeah but yeah they, they're like giving people really crappy buildings because you don't like their country was obviously something during the cold war that happened yeah. quite a lot yeah. <laughs> so, or, or, or it's just um, a yeah. yeah if they're just not an important global player you kind of like show your contempt by putting them mm-hmm. in a crummy building yeah. well funny enough like in london there was a there were a few occasions where like certain embassies like the, the you know the the like the u.s embassy is like a gigantic huge building that you know it it looks like it was built by americans basically um <laughs> but there were times there were times when like the americans were like oh we need to keep a you know we need to like watch over this particular country so the the, the british government would be like okay well we'll give them this embassy so you can see it oh god you know like so it's just on this road so it's easy for you to Keep keep an eye on what they're Comings doing. And in, in the, you know, the less, so for the less in, for the less important countries, they'd give mm-hmm. them embassies that were like further away. Or sometimes, if you know a country suddenly became more important, they're like, oh well, well, we're giving you a new embassy. It's this building over here. We've got to demolish that building for right. some reason. So there's a lot of kind of you know li- the most literal of politicking about mm-hmm. which buildings are where. Um, but yeah, but I did like this. I mean, again, this is this is the part that feels like the most Coen Brothers, like the fact that this guy is like a KGB agent, and yet he's pretending to be somebody he's not, and you know, it's not acknowledged by the people in the room, but they obviously do kind of know it. Oh. And you know, when James Donovan goes back to talk to him a couple more times, they're like sharing, you know, a glass of vodka and you know, kind of joking as if they know that yeah. he's in the KGB, but no one's going to say yeah. it. And, you know, that's 
I like that kind of that stuff was kind of fun. The other touch that I really liked is that it uh, does not have subtitles when people are speaking German and Russian. Yes. That I really yeah. enjoyed that it it puts us really in uh, Donovan's shoes, right? That we that we don't get any more than he does. Uh, that if you know they're talking and the point to some extent is that he's not going to understand them we also don't understand them or at least i don't uh, oh, since I, I have mediocre german and no russian i i have a funny thing about the uh, the captioning because i put the mm-hmm. i put the captioning on and there were bits where tom hanks was being donovan's being talked talked at in german and he does not understand and the caption was conversing in german i'm like uh uh-uh, uh that is not conversing because he does not understand. <laughs> That's yelling in German. Yeah. Yeah. Teutonic, Teutonic uh, yelling. I mean, German, such a such a romantic language. <laughs> Always music to the ears. I mean, um, truly German is a language made for barking orders at people. <laughs> yeah, I mean... <laughs> yeah, I mean, obviously that had an unfortunate side effect uh, during the early part of the previous century. Um, but yeah, so, you know, there's, again, there's a lot of, like, back and forth with the negotiations in terms of, like, you know, uh, Shishkin is happy with the deal, um, and he's like, yeah, sure, you know, we'll exchange both, and he's using it as a way to leverage East Germany, because East Germany has prior, and then also West Germany, uh, you know, they're, they've got powers, <laughs> so, so between Vogel and Shishkin, they're both trying to leverage the other country, well- to make the deal for Abel. And the US um, doesn't acknowledge East Germany yet as a yes. real country. And that's yeah. their, the East Germans' motivation is they want to be seen. They want recognition from the US, but they also want to be seen to be a real country to mm-hmm. their Soviet allies. Because, mm-hmm. like, even yeah. if you're a puppet state, you don't like to feel like you're a puppet state. Right. You want to be a real boy. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, of course, Tom Hanks starring in a, a Disney Plus uh, Pinocchio later on this uh, this year. Nice so. link. All oh, together. Can I say um, something about the toast to the deal that Shishkin does? Yes, sure. Because I think that's where we're at, isn't it? We're like they're kind of agreeing to the deal, and then you know, I think does uh, does Tom say Nastrovia? He just he does the yeah, which yeah. I think is technically not correct how you toast russian but that's not what i was going to bring up um is <laughs> okay. the fact that they toast they toast with armenian brandy which is definitely would have been a a, a good option because mm. armenian brandy is very good it's very highly thought of and in fact when i was living there um my uh, wife's aunt and uncle have a very good chocolate cake recipe that calls for brandy and because the best brandy we could get hold of there was armenian brandy that's what we used, and it was very successful. So I toast Armenian brandy, and yeah, I wish it was a bit cheaper in the UK. <laughs> I'll have to check out Armenian brandy. So yeah, like the deal is in place, but then, um, I mean, Vogel's still not completely happy with the deal. Um, but, you know, he's he's getting what he wants. Um, you know, the GDPR are getting what they want, which is recognition as a country. Um uh, I, I did think as well there was a funny thing where Tom Hanks is like, first of all, all your country names are way too long. <laughs> yes. Yeah, this this ra- rang slightly... It's a good joke, but also he is very good at pedantic detail. Mm-hmm. So the yes. fact that he can't get the name straight apparently seems not quite 
true. Like he wants at one point uh-huh. calls calls them the Republic of East German Democrats, which I I enjoyed. I thought it was really interesting in general that he has in a lot of these scenes where he's negotiating this persona where he just seems sort of hapless and depressed and lost. And then there are these moments here and there where it's like he's partly at least putting on a show. Like there was actually one scene even where I was kind of interpreting it and he like it looks like he's like got this cold, right? He looks like he's just kind of falling apart. And then like two minutes later yeah. he seems like he's totally fine, right? And I'm like, oh, are you like faking yeah. this whole thing to seem like more pathetic? Mm, so I was gonna say I think, like, you. Yeah. yeah. When like when he yeah, when he arrives at the Russian embassy the first time, he's obviously he's been he's been walking with that coat. And so it looked like he's he's kind of sniffling a lot and stuff. And then when he meets again with uh, Shishkin, he does the same thing again. He starts like putting on like he's got a cold. Yeah, really oh, I, I, and, I, so if, yeah. and I love how yeah. Shishkin is like, let's call this the impatient plan. Uh-huh. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but he's also yeah. so, putting on that show kind of for the CIA guy. Mm. Yeah, mm. yeah. That's what I'm saying. Like, it, like it feels like at first he really d- was being affected by the cold, but then he gets a yeah. new coat and then mm-hmm. he keeps doing it, and it's, mm-hmm. it feels like it's a bit, a bit of an act. Yeah. Um, On the country name thing, uh, one of the CIA guys who isn't the main hand- handler guy, but they have a conversation in the car very early in Tom's time in Berlin, corrects him when he calls the Soviets the Russians. He goes, "No, no, no the Soviets," and and it's kind of. I thought that was interesting that mm-hmm. there's one guy who is on that detail and understands that they're not synonymous because it tends to be used a bit like in the cold war especially a bit like the way some people conflate english and british it's like there is overlap but it is not identical Mm -hmm. yeah yeah or like in how a good day to die hard uh they they go to um chernobyl and they pretend it's in Russia. Uh, well, which... I, think, I think we all know. Yes. I think we all know, given the TV series and the current conflict. It's not a good not thing to do. Yeah. No. But it's also just so American. Yeah. Like, Americans love just, like, aggressively not knowing anything about other cultures. It's our main cultural trait, in fact. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad you said I mean, that, not us. <laughs> There is, there is, there is literally a guy. I, I mean, there's a guy on TikTok, and he, all he does, he goes on a meagle, and, and when he gets Americans, he's like, "Oh, can you name like, you know, five European yep. countries?" <laughs> and the, and the first thing they'll do is they'll go Africa, and then it's like, like, what are you even? What's going on? Like, yeah, no, I mean, how like, like I, you know, and I will say, yeah, obviously, this is also a very kind of Eurocentric situation. But for a long time, I kind of assumed that if you're basically talking about Western Europe, you don't need to spend that much time, like really kind of like showing things on a map to American students to be like, this is where Paris is. Nope, you absolutely need to do that. <laughs> Yeah. And what's what's funny is like cuz some of these like uh, you know on the internet some Americans would be like yeah well I get I bet you can't name five states and we're like yeah we we can we could do that quite easily that's not a, that's really not a challenge you just right. have to stick to the ones that start with new mm-hmm. and you can yeah. name four straight away yeah. like it's you know name five name five european countries as a challenge for americans name anything in america is not a challenge for europeans right. no. you know? no i will so, i will say that the uh the two uh the two guys who played mary and pippin have a podcast and every now and then they like get into american geography and while they know the names of states they yeah. do not know where states are in the united states <laughs> yeah um i mean I'm, the thing is there's a lot of them on the east coast oh, yeah. and then after that there's hardly any like it's literally gigantic square oh yeah i mean so, most americans have like most americans from the east coast uh which i am originally have no idea what's happening in the middle of the country 
<laughs> yeah. I still on any given day, like I'm not a hundred percent sure I can distinguish between like Colorado and Wyoming. I mean, I think, well, I mean, Wyoming is like a complete square, isn't but it? This so, is Colorado and uh, they're next to each other. Yeah, no, they are. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at, at least, at least between like North and South Dakota, there's a little bit of distinguishing like with the borders. Is, I think one of them follows a river. So it's a little bit wavy. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. So, but I mean, yeah, I, I, it, in some ways it feels like, you know, we know how accomplished James Donovan is as a as a person because we've seen him in the first hour be extremely yeah. accomplished. So it's funny that when all this negotiation starts going on, he kind of starts being a little bit bumbling and kind of, mm-hmm. you know, playing things a little bit underpowered. But we find out his true intention is like, you know, Pryor is definitely going to be part of this deal. Yeah. He's not going to do the deal if Pryor's not part of it. Um, Gotta bring the nice Yale boy home. <laughs> yeah, and what I think is funny is he obviously he goes to like the German like at this point the is it the East or the West German Attorney General oh God, I have no idea. has been. East I think German. it's yeah, I think German. it's yeah I think it's East German. So the East German like Attorney General has been brought to his attention that this deal is going on, and obviously he wants to kind of parade himself a little bit. So he brings Tom in, and then he kind of is like, I've got to go to a meeting, and kind of fobs him off, um, and he's left with this. I, it's this. I thought this scene was kind of like interesting. That like they've left him with this 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 assistant who clearly speaks yeah yeah who clearly speaks really good English and could clearly understand what's going on. Like a lot of the other characters in this film, they don't like they don't speak English. They speak their own language. You know, some you know like, they'll have bits of English, but there's there's no one who in the entire film seems as good at speaking English as this assistant Ooh, guy. Oh, Shishkin's very hand. good. Shishkin is very good. Oh he, yeah. Yeah, but he but but he has some weird turns of phrase that obviously you know. Yeah, but are, he gets are, his he gets his definite and indefinite articles, which is mm. a sign with if if you're a native Russian speaker and you're actually saying ah and the, it means you're you know you've tried really hard because those don't exist in Russian. So actually getting them and yeah. using them more or less correctly is really good. Or he does say make a photograph, which is mm-hmm. very much a. Because it is yeah. literally make a photograph hmm. in Russian. So, um, I also yeah. wonder with this intern guy if, uh, if it's like supposed to be generational, that that generation would be more likely to have like started learning English younger, perhaps. Yeah, I'm, I, I mean, you know, it's well known that like out of everybody in Europe, the best English speakers are the Germans oh, yeah. first and then the English oh, second like the, 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 Scand- the Scandinavians Darren the Scandinavians are even better than Ooh, the Germans. well yeah. yeah I mean when when I was at my, when I was at school it was like you know why are we learning German it's like because Germans have been learning English since they were three years old like they're gonna, they can speak your language better than you so yeah, that was I mean we, we nobody's ever tried to make us learn any of the Scandinavian no, languages that's, that's in, tr- that's in true. English school that's true but when so I was, that's why that was always given as the example though I do not doubt that all the Scandinavians probably speak I, better in English was, than most English I was an, as well. an exchange student in in Copenhagen uh, during my time at uni and I would sometimes deliberately like drop in the hardest um English idioms that I could just to this was how petty I was uh, just to reassert the fact that I was the native speaker here just just to see if they would yeah. actually like ask me what that actually meant just to see if they cotton on to what you were yeah, saying eh? quite cotton on to the lingo I was, I was um, a weird student yeah uh, I mean when I was uh, when I was a very young kid I found out that uh, Lego came from Denmark and I was like oh I'd be nice to go to Denmark at some point in my life never have done um, it's good I'd know, recommend I've, it I've got yeah, I've got a passport. I could go Copenhagen tomorrow if I wanted, if I wasn't already going to work. But, you know. Um, so, 
I could go to Copenhagen this weekend. Um, but yeah, so I mean, well, I it's funny because I think. This weekend. Uh. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm over here in this dumb country. Yeah, I, I think I think it's funny because it feels to me like they leave this kid behind with him deliberately. Like he like he's mm-hmm. going to pass this message on, and he's going to say a lot of words, and it's going to be very very long yeah. and hard to remember, and it needs to be very precise. And I think they've left him with this kid deliberately so that yeah. he can, you know, he is probably one of the better like English speakers in the entire of that building, and it's so that the message does not get lost. Um, and you know, he he gives him like such a long message. <laughs> Um, and then at the end, he says, you know, Abel has been a good soldier, but if he doesn't feel like he's got anything to live for, he might not be a good mm-hmm. soldier for much longer, which is obviously trying to say, please, Soviet Union, do not immediately kill this man right. when he gets home. Because obviously we've seen him, in, uh, yeah, obviously, you know, played wonderfully by Mark Rylands. We've seen that he is a very honest person and also he's <laughs> steadfastly not yeah, a spy. A That's what he said. Yeah. He's not a spy. He so, yeah. you know. Yeah, they've got nothing to worry about. There's a reason why he was given 30 years, uh, whereas this pilot was only given 10. You know, considering that the Soviet justice system is meant to be harsher, I'm sure that, you know, it it is. But, like, in this case, it's meant to show that, yeah, the Americans were more harsh to this spy and he still hasn't broken. You know, Mm -hmm. like, he's got 30 years ahead of him and he's, well, 28 at this point, and he hasn't said anything. Um, And I like how he kind of checks with the kid and he's like, do you understand what I'm saying? And the kid's like, yeah, yeah, you know, like... Um, and he's also like, oh, by the way, uh, close the business today. We need to know. <laughs> or we're out of here. I'm going to get up at 5.30. Um, I'm going to get up for like a 5.30 a.m. exchange for nothing. <laughs> yeah, that's what I like as well. He's like emphasizing. And the, the kid kind of agrees. He's like, yeah, that would be that'd be stu- <laughs> stupid to kind of get up. And, like, if we're not going to make a spy exchange, what's the point of getting up at four in the morning? No point. Um, people want their lions, basically. Uh, so, yeah, uh, here we are. Uh, the, the three-way deal is on. They get the phone call. Um, we also see Tom Hanks call home and say he's on a fishing trip and he's going to go and get some marmalade <laughs> when he's in London. Like all the cover story, which I think is Edinburgh. Sounds like a great trip. Yeah, yeah, he's he, yeah he's been having a great time. Whereas really he's been obviously in the freezing, uh, you know, cold German snow. Um, but yet, yes, <laughs> yeah, for, just for one night. Um, but yeah, uh, we get to almost two hours into the film here, and we are at the bridge, um, and we are here for. A tense exchange because, um, you know, obviously they've got Murphy with them, played by Jesse Plemons, Joe Murphy. Um, he's there to identify um, that it definitely is Francis Gary Powers who's been handed back. And uh, of course, this is where Mike Rylance re- returns to the film because basically he was in the first like 45 minutes and then it's been a lot of like, you know, like we said, Cohen esque cat and mouse negotiations between the different characters. Uh, people deliberately speeding so someone gets put in jail for a night. You know, the shenanigans that you would expect in a film of this this type. Spy stuff. stuff. Yeah. Which is how he explains how he lost his coat, which I do like. Right. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's like, where's your coat? He's like, you know, spy stuff. stuff. Again, there is the thing from uh, Shishkin where he's like, oh, but, you know, it did come from, you know, where does he say Saks 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 yeah, it's yeah. Again, that didn't happen though. But right. it's a nice bit of like it's, it's a nice bit of Cohen esque business to have a guy be like, "Oh, but your coat was from this place." You know, like it's um, yeah. So we get a tense exchange because uh, the 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 exchange of prior is not going to be taking part uh, on the uh, Glenick Bridge. That's going to be taking place at Checkpoint Charlie. Um, you know, between the two sides of the Berlin Wall, um, and obviously at this point. Uh, what I like here is, you know, Abel's there with with um, 
with Donovan, and they're like, oh, okay, you know, we, you can let him go. And he's like, no, 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 I'm, I'm going with him. Um, and also, at the same time, you know, we're not going to do anything until we know that Pryor has been released. You know, we're waiting for a phone call from Checkpoint Charlie to say, yes, he's been released, and then, you know, we'll make the deal. And I really loved that um, Abel is very much like, I like, Abel doesn't know really all of that's going on, right? He hasn't been a part of this. No. But he just really trusts Donovan when Donovan is like, Donovan clearly wants to wait. And he's like, eh, you want to wait? I can wait. And we get and we get <laughs> yeah. a callback because he uses a phrase of Russian that he mentioned in a story yeah. that he was telling Donovan earlier about a uh, a, a family yeah about a fam- family a family friend who was like beaten up and tortured by anti-communists for being a communist and who was described by the Russian phrase stoiky mujik which. They translate in the film as standing man, which I'm not going to get into why that's not great, but it's fine. fine. I mean, you can, Alistair. That's why yeah. you're here. Yeah. You're the I expert. Mean, okay. you, know, like... you, you twisted my arm to <laughs> indulge in some pedantry. I mean, stoiky can literally mean standing, but it's like figuratively like uh, robust or like like not stubborn in a bad way, but like firm and holding on to their principles. And mujik is not the normal standard Russian word for man, which is mushina. Mujik is more like it's it's kind of like bloke, but more peasanty. It's like salt, mm. real salt of the earth feel to it. So like being a stoiky mujik is it's a generally considered to be a good thing to be. It just mm. means you're very resolute, but you're also down to earth. I guess. Yeah. I immediately re- regret asking you to explain. <laughs> I really, I'm very glad to hear that. Uh, I also do just want to uh, draw attention to the laugh line in this scene, which is that, so, you know, they've got uh, Jesse Plemons there to identify Francis Gary Powers. And uh, yeah. uh, Abel asks, I, you know, I wonder who they're going to get to identify me. And uh, Donovan responds, I hope it's not your Russian family, your East German family. I don't think they could even identify each other. <laughs> <laughs> oh, just going back yeah. to the scene with the East German family. I love the fact yeah. that the, the, the supposed wife, because she doesn't know what to say, she just says, I'm Helen Abel for the second time. <laughs> yes. I also, and also that I think it's a vocal at some point mixes up the names of the fake wife and the fake daughter. And he has to, and Donovan has to correct him. I love the fake. (laughs) And it very much, it very much like connects to this, like the Stasi is like, I don't know if this is quite like the Stasi, but like the East German, like, you know, bureaucratic, like spying apparatus is like bad at it. Yeah. Cause they had, they had no money. The country had only just kind of come into existence really, hadn't it? So. You as know, far as the USA only, was concerned at the time, never it did, didn't yeah. even count. Country, yeah, yeah, yeah. So they they didn't have they didn't have very much money, so they didn't they couldn't. They, I mean, they did have a lot of money, but they were spending it on spying on each other rather than uh, putting it into their uh, the actual spying apparatchik. But yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting as well because we have this we have this phrase that Abel uses a few times where people ask him to do something, and you know, or they say like, I think you know, Hank says to him a few times, you know, aren't you nervous? Aren't you worried? <laughs> and this, and he's like. He's like, you know, would it help? And he's like, and, he, and on the bridge here, he's like, you know, he says it again. He's, he's like, you know, aren't, aren't you worried? And he's like, would it help? And obviously, you know, it won't. Like, just, you know, just uh, he's just going to accept whatever's going on. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're exchanging him for someone else. That's it. Like, that's as much as he needs to know. He's not really, doesn't really care about the rest of it. Um, Quality yeah, stoicism. We get a bit of a de- 
Yeah, yeah. Well, well, I mean, we get like you say, it's it's a callback to the story of the you know the the, the standing man. Um, there is a little bit of a delay in in giving Priyab. You know, he's been held up by the the East Germans. Yeah, I can never remember who's got who. Yeah, he's been held up by the East Germans. The West Germans are on the bridge with all the lights turned on to intimidate people. Um, and you know, the CIA guy is like, just go. Like he so keeps saying, "We don't Abel. care <laughs> about Priyab. Just get yeah, powers right. back, yeah. please." Yeah, just just go over there now, and that's it. You know, you're free to go. And he keeps saying it to him. And of course, this is where Abel is like, you know, asking Donovan. He's like, you re- you know, you want this guy, and he's like, yeah. And he's like, okay, he's, yeah. I'm, I'm in a rush. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's really it's really uh, mm. yeah. But also, yeah. so they, they, it comes up like, what's going to happen to Abel when he goes back? Um, and they have yeah. this whole bit of business about like, if he's embraced, that means they're pleased with. The job is done. Whereas if he's just shown the back seat of the car, that means uh, potentially, potentially not so good outcomes. I know. I'm watching it. I'm like, oh, I'm so worried for him. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. So you know, obviously, you know, prior is released. Um, you know, Donovan argues with the CIA guy that you know it's just a test. Like they want to see if they'll just mm-hmm. give in and hand it over. And I don't understand why the CIA guy is like, yeah, sure, give him up. Like. Like, buddy, wouldn't you be the one who'd want America to look yeah. strong? Like, it just seems really right, like, like. Once you've made I mean, I this know... deal, you don't want to look like you've accepted the, you know, the bad end or the fake out or whatever, right? I mean, even if you yeah. didn't care in the first place, like now that the deal's made, like I feel like yeah, they've got to like show strength and get what they, you know, said they were going to get. Yeah. So I just I you know again like I, I mean because it, because that character is like an amalgam I'm guessing probably it wasn't completely like that but you know there probably was a bit of a delay but you know it's confirmed that Prior has been released um, and we get the confirmation that Murph, Murphy says to Powers you know all right how's it going because like that is him and he's like all right Murph <laughs> so I'm like yeah okay that's the right guy I like how they like take off the hat um, because it, it is is it one of those uh, those Russian hats with the big the fur. That they've got on him. Yeah, the Shapko Shunker, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So they take that off so you know, so he's no longer held by Russians because he doesn't have a Russian. <laughs> that's anymore. how it works. They put the hat um, on you and then Yeah, that's it. You're, mind cl- you're claimed for Russia. I'm free. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't matter where you are, if a Russian puts one of them hats on you, that's it. You're Russian now. Sorry. <laughs> those are the rules. Um yeah, so we get the exchange of every you know, we see the prior has been released at Checkpoint Charlie, we get the phone call and then we see them kind of walk across the bridge. Um, you know, powers coming back, and obviously Abel going to his. You know, what I'm assuming there's handlers now <laughs> on the other side of the bridge. Um, and he says, he says to Donovan, he's given him a gift, uh, which when we get into the plane, we find out, of course, is a portrait that he's painted of him. Yeah. Because even though essentially it was kind of only his cover, he was a real good painter. So, right. <laughs> so you know, it was it was a genuine cover, and obviously it also calls back to like the first scene where, you know, he was setting up his easel and. Uh, and using that as a cover for the dead drop, um, you know. But again, he was a he was a good painter. <laughs> so it, and he also, I mean, he you know, asked for mater- for drawing materials when he when he was in jail. Um, yeah, that, that was a request he had. I mean, he clearly, even if it's like a cover, it's also something he actually like is good at and enjoys. Mm. And he makes yeah. a big deal about like wanting to uh, also listen to Shostakovich, and he yeah. he points out to Donovan like he's a very great artist, and so he does care about this stuff. Yeah, even you know, it's like spies are actual people yeah they're still people well i mean i think as well that, that i think that is also like that is one of the things that you know makes spies uh you know kind of good at their job is being able to observe like the culture of where mm-hmm. they are and you know blend into that so you know being a starving painter 
um, you know, Very kind lovely. of is a good cover, especially if in you can, New York. Yeah, that time. Yeah, that's it. So if if you so if you can just sit there in the park painting, then people are going to think, well, that's your job, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, you're looking um, at things, and you're a painter. That seems fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we see that Abel gets in the back seat of the car. So, except he did, he lived for many years after this. Yeah, <laughs> so, I don't know why the film feels the need to yeah imply that he's uh, going up against the wall. Yeah, I mean, the film he is, is very yeah, ambiguous it's... about whether or not Abel is going to make it. Yeah, which is weird because I think out of the people who were swapped, like, uh, you know, he, like he lived longer than, what's his face? The other guy, I think, the the pa- than Powers. Mm. Like I say, d- died in a freak helicopter accident whilst filming Brush Fires right. in 1977. Pyre uh, um, died in 2019, so quite recently. Yes. Yeah. Whereas uh, I think Abel, did he die before... I think um, he died early seventies. I, I think they, I think they said he was a very heavy smoker, so he had like the yeah. Oh well, yeah. he was also, he was also yeah. a lot older than the other, or at least assuming the film portrayals are accurate, he is a lot older than yeah. the other two. Yeah, yeah. So he, well, I mean, you know, he lived for like another decade after this exchange. So, uh, but yeah, like you say, and he heavy smoker. He ended up on a Soviet postage stamp in nineteen ninety. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, where it said, well done, painter. Uh, just a painter, <laughs> nothing but a painter. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, but yeah, but the funny thing is, like, obviously there's discussion about how um, Abel was going to be treated by the Soviets because they are seen as the enemy and obviously ruthless. And I think, I don't know if it's, the, I mean, I'm, maybe I'm, this is a, something fictional, but I'm almost certain there was a spy exchange where they literally exchanged spies and then they killed the guy on the runway. Um, because they were like, he betrayed Russia. <laughs> so, like they wanted, they they wanted him back so they could kill him. Right. Um, so you know, this is obviously something that I think everybody who's at this exchange kind of knows that that is something that could happen. Uh, obviously, he isn't killed, but then we see how uh, Francis Gary Powers is treated, and it's not very well. Um, you know, he's on the plane, and people are like shunning him because they're like, "Why didn't you commit suicide and not get caught by the Russians?" You know, and. Uh, like I say, in the later kind of tribunal, they looked into what happened and they you know, they spent a couple of years going through what happened and, you know, turned out he did nothing wrong. So completely blameless. But it's obviously the people on the on the, the plane are kind of shunning. Even even Donovan is shunning him yeah. a little bit. <laughs> like, well, the film you know. also is sort of ambiguous. I mean, I think it's clear in the film that, that he, you know, didn't bring the plane down on purpose or anything like that. But I think it is ambiguous whether or not he talked because it always kind of where it cuts away and then he like goes back and he's like allowed to sleep. It's like, well, if, did they let him like go back and rest because he gave something up? Like, well, it's not no, here's the, here's, here's the funny thing. Uh, the pilots of those U2s were actually instructed. If you're caught, tell them everything. And the reason for that is they don't know anything. So all they, all they knew was their one target. Like they're, they're, they've got to fly mm. in a certain plate they've got to take pictures of this one target and then go home that's all they knew hmm. they didn't know how the plane worked they didn't know, like they didn't know they didn't know any other anything above the command where they were they just literally knew fly over this place mm-hmm. take like 50 pictures in a few seconds with these gigantic cameras and then that's it and then come home there's, there's so they don't know anything else yeah. and they were they were they were instructed just tell them everything because you know you you know nothing yeah. you're just, you're literally just a guy in a plane. You, right. you don't know anything of like intelligence-wise. So just tell them exactly what your mission is, who you are. Uh, tell them everything you want because none of it is going to be important mm-hmm. intelligence information. 
Um, so that, like the the film implies that somehow he gave them extra information or something because obviously they let him sleep. They stopped torturing him. But in reality, he had nothing else to tell well, them. Well, the whole suicide thing also is, you know, the whole suicide thing also implies that like they know something that it would be a problem for them to give up or they wouldn't be telling them to kill themselves. Like, yeah, but I, but I think that's that's more like um, just like standard military protocol. It's like if you get caught, don't let them take you alive. You know, <laughs> yeah, don't, there. Like, so that's, literally that's don't. I mean, obviously, like during when obviously, I mean, you know, this is this is a few years. Well, I think actually by the end of this film, we're we're starting to get towards Vietnam starting. But this is before Vietnam. But obviously, in Vietnam, they were like, if you're captured, just say your name and your rank, and that's it, and then nothing else. Right. Um, so they got a bit more strict on what you could tell them. But for these pilots, it was like, yeah, like talk all day because you literally know nothing. <laughs> you you know, you're just a dumb fool in a plane. Um, you know, you could tell them how to fly the plane because it's not going to help because the plane's been blown right. up. You know, like there's there's nothing. So, but I think it's weird because on the on the you know even the fact that Donovan is shunning him a little bit, you're like, what did he do? Like, yeah. you know, from our point of view, we've actually seen you know what happened. So, but yeah, from that from the from the other military guy's point of view, they're like he's betrayed us somehow. Mm-hmm. And we don't know how that is, but, you know, um, yeah, so he goes home um, and then we get to see um, James Donovan going home and on the way back, he gets some marmalade, but he gets it from the shop around the corner. Because <laughs> it doesn't even manage to like, like, he could have just taken the price tag off and gotten away with it. Yeah, but no, he just, uh, yeah, but what's what's funny is obviously as as he's kind of getting home and he goes up to his bed and just like lies down completely exhausted, obviously from the, the travel um that's when the news breaks on tv where they're like basically tell us the entire story of the film <laughs> they're like oh yeah these two people were swapped for this russian spy and the guy who did it was uh james b donovan right, like, <laughs> i thought like, you were going fishing in scotland yeah i i just find it funny that like he came up with this whole cover story and then literally the u.s media is like this is the guy who went and negotiated this swap of these spies right. <laughs> it's like I don't know if that actually happened, but that that feels kind of funny that like that's how they decide to. Right. You know, we see him the next the next day on the train, and people have got the newspaper, and this one woman is like looking at the newspaper and sees his picture, and then looks over at him. Yeah. Ooh, and the train uh, which con- scene is a bit of a callback as well. Yes, which contrasts with what happened when they were on the train going between right. East and West Germany, where they saw a bunch of people running to try and get over the wall, and they were all gunned down. And obviously, they see some like people jumping a fence or something, and it's like they're not getting yeah. shot because this is America. Yeah, which I, I, I mean, I don't know. Maybe, maybe this is just world politics is stupid, but like the idea that for like God knows how many years, what was it like, forty-two years, something like that, the defense was the war was up, and for all that time you were killing people just because they tried to go past one point of this. Like it's just a, it's just a, like a weird imaginary line, and you're trying to kill them because they want to go on the other side of that imaginary line. Except you've put a big wall up and a lot of fences, and then like never like the level of security on that wall was ridiculous. Like I mean, gun towers every few feet. And, absolutely true. Of yeah, America's southern border right now. So, well, yeah, but but it's just one of those things where looking back, you're like, there's gotta there's gotta have been like guys who were like in the East German army who like shot people. Who years later were like, what were we doing? Mm-hmm. Just sh- like shooting Germans who just wanted to not be in this miserable bomb site of a city. Right. Just or even like because go. of how things got divided. Like, as I said, I'm not an expert in this, but I'm sure people had like family, friends who were like, happened to live on the other side of Berlin. Like, yeah. Again, the, t- the time jumps are actually make this kind of a bit fuzzy because the st- like the fence, literally the wall was just put up and then that was it. And then when people kept trying to cross, then they started putting in 
the you know like the the barbed wire and stuff and then they started putting up the the towers and like every every year they kept adding more and more security but to start off with like if you were on the wrong side of the wall it was quite easy for you to just like climb it and get to the other side of the wall like it wasn't it wasn't that much of a problem in the early days but obviously like we see the wall going up and then we see the level of security that was basically present a decade later yeah um, i mean it, so it's, it's it really makes yeah, it's it a bit look fuzzy. like if you happen to have like gone to like see a friend for lunch on the wrong side of the wall at the time when it went up you were like stuck in east germany forever <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which wasn't accurate. Like there was ton- like the first few years, there were tons of people, thousands of people who were allowed to just go back and forth and stuff. And then obviously, you know, things started to get tightened up and, you know, but it's just it's just really weird because, yeah, like there is that deliberate contrast of like, oh, Tom Hanks was like four for looking out the window and then somebody was shot in Germany. And now we see kids jumping over fences and no one's shooting them because it's in America. Um, but at the same time, you're like, OK, I mean, <laughs> like, people have never I, I better than East Germany. Go in America. Hmm? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah, you've you've been. I mean, like, are there any stories of people like, um, you know, going over someone's their own homes in the United States? Yes, yeah. Yes, there are those yeah. stories. <laughs> yeah. Are there, like, uh, what about people like like accidentally going into someone's garden and someone pulls out a gun and shoots them? Oh, yeah, yeah I'm sure that's happened. Like, yeah. So. I yeah, I would think even in the 60s climbing over a fence in America is more likely to get you shot than um the Berlin Wall but right. you know, I mean you know, I'm it's, sure it's also like this film came out in 2015 I like to think that maybe if it came out just a few years later they would have been a bit more thoughtful I mean given things like you know the the man who got shot by a cop who entered his house like thinking it was her house like uh, by now, at least in the United States, uh, you know, people at least on one side of the political aisle are very aware of the fact that people, especially black people, like get shot for no good reason all the time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, yeah, that is like the yeah, like it, yeah. I mean, the fact that this came out, yeah, like you say, like very, just be- before build that wall was. A, I mean, it's funny because it's like Americans yelling "build that wall" when you know. <laughs> Ronald Reagan was telling Gorbachev to tear a wall down. It's like insane. Fa- fam- famous, <laughs> famous liberal Ronald Reagan. Right. Yeah. Right. Tear, tear down that wall. Uh, and he did, sort of, in a roundabout way. Um, uh, the fall of the Berlin Wall is a fascinating time period. Like, it's the, the way it happened is so kind of. It's, it's about, like, there's police departments panicking, armies panicking, not knowing what to do, you know, crowds gathering, and then, like, people just, like, being like, oh, let's just take this wall down. <laughs> and it wasn't really a government effort. It was just, like, the people being like, we're sick of this nonsense, quite frankly. Uh, just a bunch of Berliners being like, let's just knock this wall down. Well, you know, and, and, we and Gorbachev saying to, uh, to the Soviet army, like, you are, not to, you are not to fight this, as I understand it. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, the, like the whole management of like West Berlin is kind of in, like insane because it's like the Russians, the English, the German, the French, all managing different parts of the city and taking it in turns. And same with like um, Spandau Prison, they had like a rotor of like which countries <laughs> afterwards were, were going to guard the Nazis for like like you know. And they would do it on different weeks, so it's like oh, this week it's England, next week it's Russia, week after that it's France. And like the prisoners knew like which which country was more lenient, and you know when the Russians were in charge, they would all be a bit more disciplined. And it's I don't know, it's kind of like all the stuff about uh, kind of East Germany is is kind of interesting. Um, yeah, 
you know so but yeah you know i mean they tell us what happened to everybody um you know james b donovan freed a bunch of people from cuba which is true like they, he was there to negotiate the, the the kind of the release of like 900 people or 700 people something like that ended up making 1113 people free um you know uh rudolph abel never said he was a spy <laughs> until the day he died <laughs> because he was a spy and that's what spies yeah. do like it's a paradox isn't it like if you if you admit you're a spy yeah if you admit it if you admit you were a spy were you ever really a spy because you just you you're know you gave up the game yeah yeah so uh you know gary powers oh, like no. we said died 1977 what's uh yeah like we said uh gary uh, sorry francis gary powers died in 1977 uh filming brush fires in california as part of a news crew which is good Such thing that weird. that situation is now under control. oh yeah no that's like yeah here we are 40 something years later and there's no problems with that uh and then of course like we said frederick Pryor, he ended up becoming a lecturer um uh he's still alive 86 uh, oh sorry no he died in 2019 age 86 um and yeah he was you know oberlin and yale and then like you say was a lecturer at swarthmore for yep. many many years yep. um and he died in newtown square pennsylvania uh where he'd lived for the last 11 years of his life huh. um so there you go yeah. yeah so everybody you know did okay out of this nobody died no one was killed by their governments um everyone just lived their lives um and uh you know that's the end of the film uh i think i think it's interesting because like again like it ends with like a you know like a a whole thing where it's like acknowledged on the news and in the papers that you know that that james donovan did this stuff um obviously restoring his reputation because his reputation was ruined by the fact that he defended a spy um being a stickler for the constitution (laughs) yeah and tried to appear i mean it's it's funny because I don't know maybe it's just like these days if if somebody you know was caught for doing something and then was defended by a particular lawyer would anyone really care about that particular lawyer <laughs> like I mean I don't, you know I guess there was less like you know we live in a twenty four hour news cycle or whatever so I guess less people would notice something like that it would be um, a big deal for about twenty four to forty eight hours right yeah. Uh, but yeah, so like obviously, you know, there have been, uh, you know, Russian spies caught in America since this and people have defended them in courts or whatever. And I, I, I don't know that anybody's even like particularly paid attention. So, yeah, I think it's just the whole weird, you know, news cycle thing. Yeah. Um, it's kind of and not in that. But these days, generally, uh, people just get poisoned. Like <laughs> that seems to be. Like you know, like you know, like Alexander Litvinenko and like uh, Sergei Skripal. Like you know, it, you, if you know about spies, it's because Russia didn't like them anymore and decided to poison mm-hmm. them, and then deny that they even did it. So you know, it's like that's that. It feels like that's kind of what happens these days. And also, you know, the spy. You know, the kind of spy stuff these days is you know all on computers or whatever. So it's not it's not really the same thing. That's why that guy caught doing the dead drop thing was kind of weird. Yeah, because it's like, buddy, it's it's. The internet exists. <laughs> like, what are you doing? Send an email. You don't need to dead drop stuff anymore. Um, it has so much tradition behind it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I guess some people are like hanging on to it. Um, you gotta do, you gotta do yeah, dead so, drops and get some wigs. Yeah, yes. Oh, no. uh, people are. Some people are just traditionalists, quite frankly, when it comes to their spying. Uh, but yeah, so Mark Rylance obviously won an Oscar for best supporting actor for this, and also the BAFTA because, of course, he's British. Mm-hmm. So. 
I don't know who he, who he's up against in that category, but it doesn't matter. If there's a British guy in the BAFTA acting categories, they get the win. In a big American a Brit- film as right. well. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I don't know. The amount of, like, financing for this thing from all over the place. Like, there's so many. Like, th- I, I, I don't know if you can even call this an American film, mm-hmm. uh, given the amount of different companies that were involved in it. Mm. Um, but, yeah. So, like, you know. I mean, it's weird because, like, you, like Tommy is kind of in a lot of the film. Like, obviously, he's not in the opening. Um, but then from once he's introduced, he's pretty much... Uh, like, it's more his film than yeah. it is Mark Rylance's film, which yeah. is kind of weird because, like, he... Like, I don't know. I've, the structure of this film feels so weird to me because for the first hour, it's like, oh, here's a trial of a spy. And whether or not it's ethical to try them and what we, what we should do with spies and you know, Russia isn't bad and duck and cover and all that kind of stuff. And then it abruptly takes a left turn into, oh, we're going to swap these two guys and you've got to negotiate with two different people, one of whom is a KGB agent who won't admit is a KGB agent and just keeps making weird toasts. And the other guy (laughs) is a lawyer who's, you know, going to end up getting you put in jail just to prove a point. It's like, well, like this whole second... And they're kind of two different movies in some... Yeah. Or they feel like they're kind of two different movies that are really just united by the fact that, like, this is actually more or less what happened. Yeah, and I I mean, I guess, you know, the challenge obviously was that, like, the structure of what happened happened. Like, you know, this guy was caught, he was exchanged, uh, you know, but the stuff, like, the stuff with the pilot, again, feels kind of superfluous. I didn't need to know about the U2 bomber or whatever. Like, they could have just... Yeah, it really Show doesn't him matter being shot down. who Francis Gary Powers yeah. is, to be honest. Like, I honestly, I'll, I will say no. I never cared about that guy. <laughs> I certainly <laughs> no. didn't need to see, like, the sort of pseudo-action scene when the plane no. gets shot down. I just like... No, it's like, I don't care. It's just like, yeah, yeah just say he got shot down. Yeah. I can't like an extra 15 minutes on a film. Dissertation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm like, well, this is it. Yeah, like, and that that feels undercooked as well. Like, it feels like we see too much of the whole. When you go into war, this is what you need to do. You know, we're taking like the whole pictures, like the sh- the size of the cameras and all that kind of stuff. There's another film uh, called Thirteen Days with Kevin Costner and Bruce Greenwood, and I'm trying to remember who plays his brother, but it's another guy who kind of anyway. And like, that's a very detailed film about what happened with um, the Cuban Missile Crisis and. You know what the planes, how the planes were flying over, what they were taking pictures of, whether or not they were shot. They were shot, by the way, but they pretended they weren't shot. All that kind of stuff, and that's like again, it's like a two-hour film where there's a lot of like ins and outs. But you feel like you need to know all that stuff because you need to know what the pilots are doing because you need to know why the crisis is happening. In this, it's like he was he was shot down. That's literally all we need to know. We like we didn't need the ins and outs of like him being interviewed for it or Michael Gaston giving instructions about how to kill yourself. Like we didn't need any of that. Just show us him uh, getting shot down or just show us him being put on trial after being shot down. You could cut a lot of that early stuff out. Um, and, and then, you know, like I said, the stuff with Pryor, like, again, it feels a little bit tacked on, but it's like, if anything needs a bit more airtime, it's that. Like, give us a couple more minutes of so we understand him a little bit more mm-hmm. instead of just having people dismiss him as like, oh, is this Yale kid who's studying abroad during the... Like, it just feels like a lot of kind of one-liners about him. And it's like, he was a person who was like, in prison for like a year yeah (laughs) like mostly in solitary confinement like just like you know like get let maybe have a little tiny bit more of him you know um, yeah you could have had more of him and less of powers yeah and if like you know if like obviously at the end when we've got people shunning him and stuff you need to know why they feel like you know he was caught and he was paraded around and they feel a little bit like annoyed at him for that but it's like uh you know i is it really important to the, like if the film is about Abel and and Donovan which is what it feels it's meant to be and that's what the first hour certainly feels like 
then you know keep going along those lines but you know other than i mean again i mean maybe it's just because i'm coming off the back of having to watch like three or four <laughs> films in a row that are like two hours long for tom hanks and i don't think any of them deserve those run times i don't think this deserved more than two hours yeah. like I felt like this story could have been done in an hour and 45. Yeah. Um, you know, as much as I enjoyed the shenanigans in Germany, like, there are a couple of scenes we could probably lose. I mean, there's stuff that's funny, but it's like, you know, maybe trim it down a tiny bit. I mean, I would have trimmed, means... trimmed down the beginning, honestly, because I think that the the spy exchange, and, you know, that, that bridge, it's got a lot of spies. I think that's really yeah. the center of the film. I would have maybe condensed the stuff at the beginning, because that's really mostly there just to i feel like establish like the basics but also tom hanks character and i think they could have done that a bit more concisely there's a bit where he gets followed in new york in the rain that seemed a bit pointless i mean right yeah that's just so the cia asset couldn't reveal himself yeah it's just like you could have just had him meet him but well yeah i mean he could have phoned him and said i'm following you i'm gonna say let's meet you know like to discuss this spy guy and like he's like even in that meeting, he's like, "We're not discussing, you know, attorney, you know, attorney client privilege." Like, it's like, okay, so why? What's the whole point of this? <laughs> if you're not going to discuss anything, why are we having this scene to show pressure was put on him? I can infer that pressure is put on by everybody else because, by like, the circumstances. You know, he's yeah, defending so, but, a communist spy, alleged. Yeah, so I mean, I'd say out, out of the films that we've had, you know, between Hanks and Spielberg so far, this is kind of the the oddest in the like. And again, I think I put that down to the Coens like handling the back half of the film mm-hmm. and making it a bit more Coeny. Um, and you know, Steven Spielberg, uh, as much as people, I mean, I, I, I don't know what happened. Like over like the whole West Side Story thing, people seem to think, oh, you didn't realize that Steven Spielberg was a good filmmaker. I don't. I mean, okay, all right. You know, people were arguing over it. It's like, yeah, of course he's Steven Spielberg. Yeah. Like he's been extremely successful since literally the first film he ever made. <laughs> like. <laughs> You know, he directed the pilot for Columbo, Christ's sakes. So like, nobody's saying he's not a good filmmaker, but, you know, he sometimes has a bit of a dead hand. And it's like, you know, he's he can be like a dazzling filmmaker, but then also he can make stuff like Hook and Indiana Jones 4. <laughs> like, you know, he's not perfect. Um, and I'd say in this case, again, like, uh, you know, maybe it's just because a few different elements are off. Maybe it's because he hasn't got John Williams. You know, maybe it's because you know, uh, the Coens and, you know, a kind of writing a kind of more comedic second half of the film. I don't know, maybe there's something, but it just felt like out of all the films they've done together, this wasn't as clean, mm-hmm. you know, as, um, you know, Catch Me If You Can or, you know, Saving Private Ryan, both of which I think are longer than this film, but feel a lot shorter, <laughs> you know? And people criticise, like, you know, the opening scene from Saving Private Ryan. Uh, they're, they're, mis- they're, they're, mis- they're forgetting that the, the film opens with the walk into the graves. The second scene is the landing on Normandy Beach. And in that particular scene, like, it is 45 minutes of just people getting their head shot off. But it goes by so quick. You know, it's so intense that it doesn't feel like that. And the first, literally the first hour of this film is the whole kind of debating, like, what's going on in court and stuff. And, yeah, that probably could have been cut down to about 45 minutes, half an hour. And it takes them 20 minutes before they even get Tom Hanks and Mark Rylance in the same room. So, you know, it takes its time getting stuff done. Um, but yeah, I, I, not that it's a bad film, but you know, let's go to judgments, and I'm going to start with Alistair. You know, T. Hanks or no T. Hanks? Yeah, I mean, T. Hanks from me. Yeah, I figured as well. <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, I'm interested in that the, part. You world. let the lady killer slide. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's look, look. <laughs> it's considerably better than than the lady killers. It's less weird, um, but yeah. it's it's not amazing. I don't know when I would watch it 
again like but i was happy to rewatch it for this for this show so yeah, yeah uh past past the time yeah Admirably. I mean, Ollie was the biggest advocate of this film, so he probably would be outraged that, <laughs> you know, we're dismissing it like this. Um, because, you know, I think he was a definite T Hanks as well. And obviously that was the reason that he brought Sarah into this. Um, so, Sarah, how do you feel about Ollie forcing you to watch this film? I actually will say I will give this an enthusiastic <laughs> T Hanks. I really enjoyed this film. I was kind of, I don't know, I'd, I'd never seen this before. I guess I, honestly, I, the premise didn't necessarily inherently interest me, and I got really into it, and I really enjoyed it, and I really see, uh, enjoyed seeing Tom Hanks basically play my dad. <laughs> plus plus <laughs> yeah. some dissertation-related trauma. I know, right, and some dissertation-related yeah. trauma. I got to see, like, a professor from my college get, you know, rescued from, like, an East German prison. It was great. I had a lot of connections to this yeah. world that I did not anticipate, so I'll give this a definite thanks. I was going to say, it's surprising how many connections there were to this film that before now it hadn't, you know, garnered your attention. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's T. Hanks for me. Although, again, you know, I probably, as with other films that I've given T. Hanks since we've come into the new year, I'm probably never going to watch it ever again. <laughs> I mean, you know, I saw it at the cinema and I nodded off maybe once. And again, probably just because of the heat and it was winter and, you know, but uh, like it's an enjoyment of film. But like the, I mean... You know, the, the problem with like true life stories, and this is something that obviously, you know, is plaguing Tom Hanks in the last like <laughs> decade of his career because he just seems to be obsessed with only appearing as, you know, real life people. Um, as he, this is, this is literally the third in a row where he's playing a real person. He's just played Walt Disney, and before that, he was Captain Phillips, and now he's like, you know, uh, Donovan, and he's going to be Sully in a few films' time, and then he's reuniting with. Uh, Spielberg to do the post where he's another real guy and then he does you know a beautiful day in the neighborhood where he's another real guy um and then later on this year he's in Elvis where he's playing a real guy like he's just obsessed with doing this like since like Charlie Wilson it's you know that's it's become his kind of obsession uh to just keep appearing in you know films about real people now, I will um, say I think this is a good and, and I think this is a very good Tom Hanks performance I don't know that much oh, yeah. really about this actual person so I can't say anything intelligent about whether he like embodied this real person but I thought that the at least the personality that Tom Hanks had as this character I, I thought was really excellent like I thought he was both like very compelling but also had a way of seeming like sort of relatable and ordinary. I don't know. Like, I, I actually thought, I thought this was an excellent performance. I think it's it's interesting because when he's talking to his son about the whole, like, we can't co constantly have, like, a full bath of water. <laughs> like, you know, we, you know, we, like, we can't do that realistically. But he still understands that his son is afraid yeah. of this. And he's, so he kind of reassures him, uh, again, you know, as America's dad. So, mm -hmm. but yeah, it is, I mean, it is a good, it is a good performance from Tom. I would say, you know, if we're looking at, like, kind of, you know, post- Catch me if you can. Performances, I would say this is probably, um, I don't know. Apart from me, he was good as Charlie Wilson, and he was good as Captain Phillips. He was, <laughs> and then he was, and that's probably it. He was entertaining like, in uh, in the Lady Killers. It's not it, he, well. <laughs> he's much more yeah, measured I mean, in this. I think you could say. Yeah, I like. I think this is uh, like of this of the of the well, the Lady Killers is the start of the the decline. You know. <laughs> Um, of the kind of like post catch me if you catch, catch me if you can you know road to perdition that was a film we couldn't there you go uh, uh, like cast away like there's a green mile like that you know like that like that run you know I did I called it the golden you know 14 for a reason 
because it's like 14 great films one after the other where there isn't a bad performance from tom in any of them and then here we are like 14 films later exactly this is the 14th film since cash me if you can and there's only about three performances excluding toy story 3 because obviously you know that's not that's like not not really a performance you can judge in mm-hmm. the same way you know you're talking like you know this captain phillips and maybe charlie wilson are like the only films that i'm like those are worth watching again mm-hmm. and then you've got like two robert langdon's in there and a larry crown and you're like it just feels like tom was kind of lost um you know but, but like like we said it's a good performance like it, you know it, it it manages to cut like we don't know what this guy was like in real life right. like, you know he's been long dead before i think he was ever on film in any way but he does get across the idea of like a lawyer who wants to stick to the rules and you know isn't isn't willing to just like throw it all out the window because the person in front of him is a spy uh, or not a spy you, you know obviously yeah. innocent until proven guilty but like the fact that he's willing to kind of stick to those guns is is kind of interesting and you know that's what makes the character uh, and the performance uh, very and also the fact that he kind of embraces the kind of comedic half mm-hmm. of the film yeah um, you know, where he, like we say, it looks like he's pretending to have a cold to kind of make himself mm-hmm. look weak and, you know, kind of messing with the, the kind of the Russian, you know, the KGB guy. And then, you know, like I, all of that stuff kind of works as well. Like it's a serious performance in the first half. And then in in the second half, it, it kind of gets a little bit more kind of comic um, and, you know, shows that Tom Hanks can handle. But of course, he came up as like a comedic actor in the 80s. Like that's what he was known for. So it's not surprising that he kind of embraced that a little bit in the second half of the film. And I think there's a nice subtlety in that performance in the second half of the film, too. And that I, you know, and that it is, I think, a real, a relatively kind of subtle shift of his real persona versus the, the kind of put on... Uh, exhausted uh, uh sort of like only semi-cop like I, I think I, like i think it's a subtle shading that he does and i think that he does it very well and that like i mean that i felt like you know watching it for the first time it definitely took me a moment to be like is this how much of this is real and he's just like exhausted and jet lagged and uh, <laughs> how much of this is him putting on an act and i sort of came around to it definitely being an act by the end but I thought it was really yeah. kind of subtly done in uh, in a way that I thought really worked. And also, I th- I think I mean obviously it's not subtle in terms of like you know here is the Russian trial and it's just a show trial and there's, right. there's no lawyers and like but again it's not like there's there's worse films out there that have kind of you know demonized Russia in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's certainly like in the eighties, in the seventies, <laughs> like you know the kind of the the idea of like the evil kind of Russia right. and even Germany. You know, it's not like that country gets a particularly good oh, rap, no. uh, you know, post-1946. <laughs> so I think it's interesting that kind of it paints, the like it paints the Russians and the Germans as a bit more sympathetic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, certainly, you know, the, like the KGB guy who's like joking about and stuff and making toasts and all that. Like, Just doing his job. He, he doesn't, yeah, like that's it. And, and I think also that is the kind of the key theme of like, you know, he's not a traitor to America because he was doing his job for the mm-hmm. Russians. Like, and and if and if and if Americans can't understand that, like distinguishing those two things, of like he's not a traitor if he's not an American, but also if he's American and he's in America, then he needs to be treated with the same kind of rules that every other American is. Um, so it's a kind of interesting, you know, Tom Hanks being like, yeah, this guy's not a traitor, but he's he's a Russian spy, but that doesn't mean that we throw everything out the window and treat him like, you know, he's nothing. I'm curious um, whether this film wound up any right-wing people for treating communists like actual human beings with like personalities beyond like 
the victory of socialism. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I'm sure it would do because, you know, but at the same time, it's Tom Hanks. He's America's dad. So. <laughs> But he also, I feel like there is definitely a certain, like, I mean, because Tom Hanks actually is, like, fairly, has been, I think, somewhat vocal about his political opinions, which are certainly, you know, on at least a, you know, solidly Democratic party, if I remember, you know, and so I, I think to some extent also there is, like, something of a, like, just conservative kind of dismissal of, like, the Hollywood liberal elite uh, already in the United States, so. Yeah, I don't think they'd be that particularly concerned about it. Like, I don't think this is what's going to make them most mad of all of the <laughs> many things that, yeah. that they're mad about. So I feel like we said about as much as we possibly can about British Spies. Uh, so let's go to plugs. I'm going to start with... Uh, well, I know you both have stuff to plug, so let's start with Alistair first. Let's go alphabetically. Okay, um, um, I would like to plug my track-by-track track REM uh, podcast where, uh, called <laughs> Gentlemen Don't Get Caught. We're now... Uh, we just released episodes on the album New Adventures in Hi-Fi. And I'd also like to plug the couple of guest spots I did. Because uh, Sarah, you had me uh, yes. on. You were very kind to have me on your show for a couple of different movies. So yeah, check Sarah's show out in general. And yeah, my episodes on that as well. And Sarah, you can plug your own... Ne- oh, yeah, yes. you can plug guest appearances on other stuff if you wish. Uh, I've, I've mostly just got my own show to plug. I don't think I have any <laughs> two recent guest appearances other than this one. So uh, please check out my podcast, Media Evil, a medieval pop culture podcast. And in particular, you can listen to the episodes that Alistair has guested on, where I, as a medieval historian, I talk about what films got right and wrong about the Middle Ages and how they represent the medieval past. And you can find us uh, on Twitter at the extremely awkward T underscore FT memory. Uh, thanks to both of you for being my guests here today. And obviously Ollie in spirit, even though the storm took him out. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, thank you very much, Darren. And uh, normally at the end of an episode, I make a segue hilariously into the next film. But unfortunately, the next one is called Ithaca. And I have no segue to make that work. So... Just have to listen to the next episode on the fourth Meg Ryan Tom Hanks collaboration, if again. <laughs>